Pershiri threw one in front. Bob Weber shot the score! Don, are you familiar with the DVD set Pearl Jam Live at the Garden? I am, yes. Do you recall the part during Daughter where Ed Vedder is kind of riffing? He's like, my brother man, my brother man's here. Sing because my brother man's here. I don't remember And then that. a few seconds later, like Ben Harper turns out to be the brother man and he comes out. Okay, sure. Well, I got that feeling today because our brother man is here. Yes. Well, sort of. Will I mean, be. He's not here. But he's lost. But he's here. Yes. So Josh is here. Yep. Who's your brother? <laughs> right. But I've always sort of also considered him a brother as well. Yeah. I think in general our brothers are the other one's brother sure. to some degree. Yeah. You know, especially since they're all younger than us. So they're all like you know, it would all be like someone we would look out for in that kind of a sense. How is your Brother Greg, like right in the middle of you and Anthony? Like, are you as far from Greg as he is from Anthony? One or? year different. So I'm six years older than Greg, and Greg's five, five years, years older than Anthony. Okay. So yeah. he's kind of in the middle a little bit. Yeah. Like, and then your brother Greg is more like close, close to, to us. Me. Right. You know, so I guess, what is he, one year younger than you? So it's two years like younger year than half, me. Yeah. yeah. So, well, Josh will be here. I don't know how much he'll talk. I think he's shy. <laughs> I told him he'd be like Fred on the Stern Show, but with no sound effects. We set up a mic for him. We'll turn it on, and if he wants to speak in it, he can. Sure. Probably won't. No, especially if he misses the hockey segment. I'm going to try to get some <laughs> stuff out of him. Okay. You know, like if we talk about the Sharks, that's like his non-Sabers team. Right, yep. So maybe Coast he could team. offer some insight there. Um, and he, I'm going to let him pick the out song. Okay. But anyway, we have a good show today. It is Season 6, Episode 14. Uh, we're recording on May 5th. Uh, this will go up on May 6th. And we have two Sportscasters favorites. Uh, the OG Jeff Passan is back uh, to talk about his book, The Arm. Uh, we've been talking about it in the book club. We've been featuring it. We've anticipated this book for a long time. The other guest is another guy whose books we often anticipate, uh, Jeff Perlman. And... Uh, I talked to Jeff and I said, you know, I like to have you about every six months. Last time you were on, it was October. And six months from now is November and you'll have a book out in November. Because his Brett Favre book, which is his next book, comes out in November. I said, so why don't we do something now? And we recorded it last night and it's about, I don't know, 50 minutes or so. And it's really just barroom talk. You know, it's just two dudes. He's got nothing to promote really. Although he did make a little documentary as a project for his master's degree called Book Whore. That was kind of like what his thing was last time, right? Yeah, very similar because he wasn't really promoting Spoke that a little either. politics, a yeah. little, little everything. Yeah, and we do that a little bit. We talk, about, we talk about the conundrum of election 2016 and how him as a left Democrat and me as a right Republican don't really feel like the person that is going to represent our party, quote unquote, really represents us all that much. Yeah. I think we both really feel like it's a year with we may have mentioned not this the before. best of choices. We don't talk a lot of politics no, on here, but uh, either 
no matter who wins this, might be like the most hated president right out of the gate. Could easily be. Ever, like that I can Which remember. Which is sad. Yeah, it is sad. And uh, we also, we don't spend a lot of time on that. He also gives a little bit of parenting advice. Oh. He's a good father, I'll I think. listen in. And he gives a little bit of parenting advice. Uh, he also talks about uh, sports writers. He talks about the Kurt Schilling situation. Hmm. Um, we talk about the future of book publishing. And if self-publishing, which is often a dirty word in books because it essentially means nobody wanted to publish this, if that's going to turn away from that and into why do I need a publishing house? Yeah, I mean, I can sell Apple a, name, a PDF sure. file, right? You know, and I can, and we talk a lot about Molly Knight and what she did to make her Dodgers book popular, and if that is going, and what Louis C.K. has done, yeah, um, and if that will bleed over to books. So it's a fun chat, and of course with Jeff, I'll record that tomorrow. But I can tell you right now, we're going to talk about the arm for forty-five minutes, right? So. All right, we'll do one last thing later. We will have a quick book club update, but I don't know. Oh, we'll talk about what's next, and I'm pretty sure I know exactly what's next. And we'll start now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. All right, I want to start with the NFL draft. Uh, Don, you were a good boy, and you did a draft blog at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Is that the correct address? Oh, I have it written down right here. Yes, the The sportscasters.blogspot.com. So Don did a live uh, draft blog there, and I noticed like the last three blog posts on there are Don's live draft blogs. Uh, we've been oh, yeah. we've been talking about how we want to use the blogs more, and technically we have two set up. We have one on uh, Blogspot and one on Tumblr. And I thought it would be good is if we keep the Blogspot one as kind of like your blog, okay, and then if we use the Tumblr one as kind of my blog, and we try to do one each like once a month. Yeah, I was about trying to something. I was trying to sort the Blogspot one even a little bit further, like kind of have it so like all of my draft recaps were like in one spot. I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of options on there. It yeah. seems like it's just in order by the calendar date you posted it, and that's about all you can do. I think I'd like is just kind of like a general podcast thing for you to kind of take ownership of that one, for me to kind of take ownership of that one, and for us to try to like monthly do something, whether it's a live blog right. or just a quick, like maybe next week we even do a joint blog about the Pearl Jam show or something. Sure. Or, yeah. You know, something like that. So we want to try to use them more. We'll tell you when we do. Uh, and I also did some blogging for Pro Player Insiders, who's kind of a partner of ours to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was fine. Um, so the draft, what were your thoughts? Um, kind of went the way we thought it would go early. Um, no real surprises at the top. The two quarterbacks went. Miles Jack not going. I mean, if you consider him a top, like a guy that could have been. Yeah, I, I think saw I him mocked to Jacksonville a lot. I think I knew that day that he was going to slip. Now, his problem was he was just a little too honest, right? Yeah, I guess you could say that. But, I mean, I think they 
I think the teams knew so from the, the process that or he could need is he going to need the microfracture surgery? I thought the Jaguars killed it because, like you said, a lot of people mocked it in the first. had him mocked and they got him in the second anyway. Right. You know, I thought Jalen Ramsey was probably the best player in the draft, the best defensive player. You know, I thought probably Elliott was the best offensive prospect. Yeah. Colson's whipping out because Josh is here, I assume. <laughs> uh, um. And now Tammy's got to come out and yell at him. So it's all kinds of great background noise. Uh, Joey Bosa was the first defensive pick. He went to the Chargers. Going, um, going back to the Miles Jack thing real quick. Yeah. And uh, Jalen Smith. That was yes. His name, right? Yep. Do you think Cowboys NFL, round uh, two, two for Smith? Yeah. Are NFL teams too? Uh, or is this just the culture they're in? Like, do they have to win now too much? Because both of those players sound like. Sure thing, top five picks any other year. So why not take them this year? Well, I think the thing with Smith is a little different in that you know immediately you'll have to redshirt him. Right. That there's a huge likelihood he's not playing this year. So are you in a position to pick a guy in the first round and not have that player available at all? And I would argue if you were a playoff team last year, you really should have thought about it. Like, I was sort of surprised that both guys got out of the bottom of the first round. Yeah, I, I think you can almost make the argument both ways for that. I mean, if your team is so stacked uh, because you were a playoff team last year and you're just drafting depth anyway, then, yeah, why don't you take one of those guys? And my, my argument would be if you're Jacksonville or Dallas or somebody, and Dallas kind of did do this, uh, kind of went aggressive with some players. They took Jalen Smith. Uh but I, Jacksonville I, took Jack. The Cowboys picked right, Smith. Right, Cowboys took Smith. Yeah. If you're a team that's going to be bad and you're a few years, out, few years out anyway, why not take the guy that might be the best defensive player in the draft? I, yeah, I can it, see the it, argument for sure. It seems weird. It seems like the team that wouldn't want to do it would be a team that finished like 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7 and seven just outside the playoffs because then you don't have the luxury of kind of waiting on a guy. But I think if you're, if you're really bad and you're going to be waiting anyway or you're really good and you're just drafting depth anyway – then those are the teams. I, I was surprised both made it to the next round, considering so how much promise they both had. The big story of the first round, which has been talked at nauseum at this point, obviously is uh, Tunsil. Is Tunsil and his fall uh, and the weird things like the gas mask with the bong and the bizarre statement that is. Uh, Coach gave him money, essentially, right? Oh, there's that. Yeah, I was talking about. Did you see his agent's statement about how? Uh, Laramie was shielding his teammates from the fumes of the, the marijuana or something. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you want to Google agent statement, we can uh, read some of it. Tunsil agent statement wow. or whatever. Uh, but he slipped all the way down until the Dolphins grabbed him. Sean Payton talked in his press conference uh, about how the Saints really considered taking the kid uh, just because they had him really highly rated on their board. But they stuck with... Um, they stuck with rankings. Stuck with rankings. Who was probably the easiest player to partner pairing? Right, here, before I get into yeah. the, I'll just read the headline of this from the big lead. It says, "Crazy Jimmy Sexton statement on Laramie Tunstall is lamentably not real." <laughs> oh, it's fake. So it must have been fake. It was another hacked part of his social media. Uh, I guess the statement was not real because his whole, all of his social media was apparently hacked by enemies. He's yeah, got stepdad. Or he's something. got a litany of enemies who have his social media passwords. <laughs> They're not actually like world class hackers. They're just no, dudes just who already knew one. the passwords. Yeah. 
they have like the Spaceballs uh, one two three four five yeah. uh, password on their air shield or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like I said, the Saints t- stuck to the script, uh, took the defensive tackle. I liked their draft. I liked how aggressive they were. Uh, they've been split. A lot of actors have been split. You know, guys who thought they needed players uh, and people who thought they did the right thing to get quantity or quality as opposed to quantity. And I, you know how I, my philosophy all along is to get the best team around Breeze you can every year. Yeah. And worry about anything else after. I'll even deal with two, three, and 13s post Breeze if I have to. Like if the cupboard went dry at that point. Sure. If it meant another long run or even a ring. So um, I would think you're happy with the Bills. The Bills got Lawson. Uh, at what would they pick? Nineteen. Yeah, and that, that was a pick I saw going. It's kind to of the who Saints I wanted the Saints yeah. to pick. Yeah, just because I kind of always like the edge rusher a little bit more than the inside. Yeah, guy. But uh, and the Saints have really struggled with picking nose tackles in the first round in the last fifteen years. Uh, Cedric Ellison, Jonathan Sullivan, maybe two of the worst draft picks they've had in the last you know fifteen twenty years. But uh, the Giants turned heads picking a guy named Eli Apple, and the newspapers loved the Giants picking Apple. a guy with yeah, Apple course, in his sure. name. Uh, I don't know. What else did you think? Like I said, I thought the Jaguars killed it. Uh, I really like the Texans' first-round pick. Will Fuller made a lot of sense. Notre Dame is a really talented kid. We talked about the lack of running backs in general in the draft and skill players. It really was a defensive draft. The second round especially was like all defensive dudes. It's yeah. like D-guy, 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 D-guy. It was like a tight end early to the Titans and a bunch of, bunch of defensive players at the top round. Too, you mentioned so. Lynch yet? The quarterback? No, the Broncos moved back into one. Yeah, that, that couldn't have worked better for them. And that can't be a better fit for a young guy. If he's going to be forced to start right away, what better defense to have around? I mean, yeah, and I'm sure Sanchez will start week one, but sure, he's there if Sanchez folds. And Peter King had a great article in Monday Morning QB uh, talking about the Cowboys really wanting to move into that spot and getting beaten out. And Jerry Jones just talking about how he didn't even sleep because he just had a change. Their offer was a something and a third and they wanted something in a second i heard they tried to trade the bills to get into their pick so at 19 they probably would have taken lynch there too but the bills wouldn't budge on they wanted a first next year. the whole article from peter king really is about them making their pick and then trying to get back in to get lynch it's interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, mmqb you can find it there so anything else about the draft before we move on no I mean, I say it every year. I'm always excited for it at the beginning, and then by the end of my blogs, I'm running out of things to say about players I don't watch enough. So, All right, let's move on to the NHL playoffs. It looks like, once again, the President's Trophy team, that's going to be their only trophy. Yeah. I I didn't like the Capitals much because I just thought the Penguins are faster, and the Capitals have let us down so often in the playoffs the last... With sure. this core. You know, they've never even made a conference finals with Ovechkin, let alone a yeah, that cup finals. Right. The last conference finals was against the Sabres a bunch of years back. Yeah, so I mean... 98? You know, because everyone always says, like, oh, man, the Capitals haven't made it to a cup with Ovechkin. But it's like, well, forget a cup. They haven't even made it to the conference finals with Ovechkin. And, of course, now it's the pressure does shift to the Penguins a little bit to close, close them out, out, to get the fourth win. You know... Because you got to kind of favor Washington a little bit in Game Five, um, although Orpic is still not there and Latang is back. Right. And Don, you and I this week had a pretty spirited debate over the Latang hit. I think you thought it was a little worse than I did, but I think we both did agree we thought it was a one-game one game. suspension, yeah. and they got it right. I thought. Yep. 
And I thought they got the Orpic suspension right as well. That's that said, you want to talk about hits? Uh, and I've always complained about this in the NHL that it, the punishment for a hit often falls too much on whether or not the other guy gets up. Malkin yeah. had a pretty nasty headshot. Yeah, I thought his hit was clean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, I thought he hit the head. They didn't even talk about like that. See, like at. hitting the head isn't illegal. The head being the principal point, point of, of contact, contact is illegal, right? You know, and also late is actually a defined thing in the NHL, right? Yeah, you it's told me point that. eight, and I guess like for example, in the Latang hit, that was point six, six three four, late yeah, or six like that, four. Right. You know, and they figure that out based on digital frames and how many digital frames are in a second, which I think is thirty or maybe it's twenty seven. Oh, now. really? You know, so that's how they figure out the time. Okay, they're not sitting there with the stopwatch. It's right. how many digital frames um, late he is. Strange thing about that series is I, you would it's almost it's been kind of defensive if anything uh the best player on the ice is maybe what's the, what's the penguins goalie name murray right yep he's been unreal yeah i wonder if do they does flurry ever get back in at this point because i the Capitals you know, just, was a much I better team i thought in game 4 for a good stretch of it and they just couldn't beat murray Speaking of much better teams, it seemed like the Blues have been the much better team in the Stars series. I'd love to see the Fighting Lindys yeah. uh, pull it out. They're already down one nothing tonight in Game 4. Tarasenko scored again. He's he's ridiculous. Super talented dude. Uh, I kind of felt like when the Blues got over the Hawks, they weren't losing round two. I don't know if they'll win the conference finals, but I just kind of felt like when they got past the Hawks... They're going to get the next round. They're one of those, you know, uh, and the stars unfortunately have injuries. They're one of those. It's like an old, like they're like an old time hockey team. Like I mean, Tarasenko's awesome, but beyond that, they're kind of just a hard team to play against. Yeah, Steen has been amazing, and you know the stars are built around front end scoring, and one yeah. of their front end scorers is not there. Right, Sagan. I don't know if he's playing tonight. I don't think so, uh, but they've missed him. Uh, the Islanders have been fun. They're not beating Tampa. So far, everything I've seen makes me think Tampa's going to win that series. I think the Islanders really needed to get that last win, and they you know, get what's, scored on with 38 seconds left and then lose in overtime. What's the word on uh, Stamkos? Is there any word yet? Just skating, as far as it's I know. It's got to be getting close. I haven't I heard any was... like serious talk he's going to be in yet. That team, is, that team is good, and they might get one of the best players in the league back at some point if they can make a run. So Pittsburgh... I'm sure has thought we got to get by Washington, 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 Washington. They might find out that Tampa Bay is every bit as difficult, if sure. not more. And then last series we'll go over real quick: uh, Sharks and Preds. Sharks are up two to one. <laughs> Josh, you going to talk about the Sharks at all? We got a mic here for you. At least say hello. Say hello to our fans. We talked about you in the beginning. <laughs> Welcome to the Shark Tank. Why are, are they you, so good? Are you confident? In this against Nashville, I like the way the goalie's been playing and the defense. It's a different Sharks team. It is a different Sharks team. They're another team that when they got by the Kings, I kind of felt like they're going to at least win the next round. That just getting over that hump, getting to put that away, it's going to be a loose, more loose team. We talked last week about kind of the shift in leadership and how that has helped. Yeah, where did Brent Burns come from? I mean, he's always been a good player. He's, he's gotten better as his beard has got longer. Year. Yeah, and he's like in his fifth, like thirteenth season, but he's this has been by far his best. See that old? The Wookiees come from uh, the planet Endor. 
<laughs> he was he was drafted in well he, his rookie season was 2003 2004 wow he's been unreal this yeah, year he has 11 he's points been great in the playoffs Man, like, 11 points uh how frightening is a Shea Weber slap shot he almost <laughs> killed a guy there was almost a death uh in the other game because if that puck doesn't hit his visor yeah. i forget who the player is right now but someone took a Shea Weber slapper right to the visor and if the visor wasn't there, it would have hit him right in the forehead, and he'd probably be dead. That's insane. And Shea Weber's goal uh, in, I think, the last game, maybe the game before, was just, I, I hate to say literally and mean it, but I think it was literally unsavable. Yeah. I think it was just the physics. I don't think you could move your arm fast enough. If he's going to shoot it that hard to that spot from that spot on the rink, you can't save it. We'll have to get the yeah, is it ESPN, the sports science guys. Yeah, we'll I, I'd be it. surprised if that's a savable shot. I'd be surprised if ESPN knew how he still exists. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good point. That's a very good point. So that's the NHL playoffs. Oh, I did want to mention real quick before we move on to the NHL. From the NHL, two things. One, uh, Connor McDavid was a finalist for the Rookie of the Year, and to me it's ridiculous. And... I'm not going to get too much into like a Jack Eichel, Connor McDavid thing because we've done that over and over here. Sure. But part of being a rookie in the NHL is transitioning from whatever league you came from to the NHL and getting through the grind of a season. And to put this emphasis on McDavid's two 20-game spurts, because that was basically his rookie season. He got to play 20 games, get injured. And come back and play 20 games. Right. Never did he wear down. Never did he go into the the long stretch. He didn't have the long road trips. It's just, to me, that's a really important part of being a rookie, especially in 2016. Um, I would have never had him in the top three. I probably would no. have had him fifth. I think whoever I hit it maybe is, is going to go in it to lose to Panarin. The yeah, Panarin's winning anyway. Seventh year rookie, which right? is a different debate because he's, sure. he's a he was literally a pro before the NHL. Yeah, for literally like seven years. Or yeah, he's like 25, that. 24, yeah. 25. So uh, it's his to lose unless like if McDavid wins this, it's criminal. What? But, what's the guy's name? Gossespierre Goth, was the other. Finalist. I mean, he's a defenseman, so you kind of have to measure him a little bit differently. And maybe he's he's arguably the most valuable player on the Flyers. He's a star in his rookie year. He's a star. So you know, and he won a national championship in Union in two, 2014. I mean, huge Gossespierre guy. I I totally agree with where you're coming from with this. Um, it's one of the reasons I never bought into Lemieux over Gretzky. Now. I don't mean to be heartless because it was cancer at one point. Uh, Other but, guys tying his skates because his back was so bad. That right. Kind of thing. But yeah. part of it is like I don't have to imagine what would have been with Gretzky. I, I mean, right. staying healthy, I think, is a skill that makes you great. You know what I mean? There's guys that Brett Favre played forever, and that's part of what made him great. And, I mean, transitioning from the NCAA and the OHL to the NHL in 2016 at age 18, being able to – find some level of consistency over the 80 game schedule and being able to slump and come back and, you know, being able to grind your way to Christmas, take those couple days off, have a huge surge, you know, that maybe you have to grind around the end of February and finish strong in March. That just matters a lot to me. And McDavid would not have nearly been able to score at the pace he did if he didn't a miss all those games, and B, get like 12 assists while he missed those games. 
Because, I mean, if there's ever been a guy who gets more phantom assists in the NHL, I need to know about it. (laughs) I mean, it's Sidney Crosby all over again. And, by the way, get used to this because Connor McDavid's career and Sidney Crosby's career are going to be very similar. And the NHL is going to find a way to force the star of Connor McDavid. Sure. And they're going to have to try harder with him in Edmonton. So, get used to it. All right, last thing real quick. Um, Any thoughts on the NBA playoffs? You probably have none because you probably haven't seen any of it. I've tried no, to keep literally up. Literally, the extent of the NBA playoffs I'm paying attention to is the Raptors. Is the Raptors? Yeah, the NHL playoffs has found a way to weasel its way into our Pearl Jam plans. And you know what? This would be a great one last thing, but Pearl Jam's pissing me off a little bit this tour because they must have known this to some extent, right? When they added that second date, or somebody had to know this. Yeah, maybe. I can't imagine Pearl Jam is just okay being pushed around i think they are okay with it i think they're just like oh we'll just go to an nba playoff game on the day off yeah they love the nba they do that's true but i'm sure to them they have no shows for a month after between that and again we don't get political really on here i don't care their political stance i don't mind that they boycotted that but to wait till what was it two Two days days before before yeah we talk about that with jeff perlman too later okay yeah the problem with that and i think you posted something about this on twitter is pearl jam's fan base is probably conservatively 40% people that traveled to the game. Yep. And you screwed them over. Not the people in the... I mean, yes, you screwed the people in the city over, but they, they can go whatever, bitch at a congressman or something. The one people th- that came, that traveled to go to that, that... Yeah. I'm a little annoyed with Pearl Jam this tour. I'll, I'll get over it by Tuesday. One last <laughs> thing about the NBA f- playoffs is we always pick on how uncompetitive round one is. And round two is headed down that path. Cleveland is squashing Atlanta... That's going to be four or five games. Uh, Golden State Warriors without Curry are up 2-0 on Portland. That's going to be four or five games. Uh, the best series is probably going to be San Antonio and OKC. I'm not sure you've ever asked this. They're 1-1. One one. Sorry. Yep. When you have a basketball guy on, or maybe you know the answer, you're going to have to ask them, why is it? I mean, this is going back to Jordan. Uh, why is the NBA such a top-heavy league? Like, is it because... I mean, I know the Heat kind of... I think because you're talking about 12-man rosters. And yeah, you just get three of those Three guys. good guys. Yeah. I mean, you can dominate the league for 10 years, like the Bulls did with the Bulls, Pippen, the Jordan, Heat, and whoever was their third the guy, Lakers. whether it was Cartwright or... Yeah, you can... All those teams. All those teams. The NBA is all about dynasties, and it's been since the 60s. The dynasties are great. I mean, but like you said, it makes it almost uninteresting in the playoffs. Yeah, and usually it's the round one that's so uninteresting... It's carrying over into round two, although OKC and San Antonio is going to be a great series. series, All right, that's it for three things. We're going to take a break, and we'll come back with Jeff Passan. All right, our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse. Uh, he is lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports, and he is the author of The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. He was the first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters when he was uh, promoting his last book, Death of the BCS, and he's making his 10th, 12th appearance today. A warm Sportscasters welcome to Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? Hooray! <laughs> is that the warm welcome? That is. It's good to have. We've been talking about right. this day for a long time, like years, kind of. We have. 
Yeah. Yes, it's been like four years, so uh, it, it has finally arrived. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, well, you're even a, a very, very great example of it where, you know, the first time we ever spoke, it was to talk about a book project, and, you know, that's true of Jeff Perlman, who's also on the show today, it's true of John Wertheim, a bunch of people whose first time was uh, to promote their current book, and with some of the regular guests like yourself and and Perlman as well, we've kind of like then followed you through whatever was next and to get to this. And I think it's been really interesting with your book because of the Hudson injury and how that kind of impacted the, the timeline of the book. And it's kind of made this all like even a little bit more exaggerated. Just kind of the, the yeah, I mean, well, this book was supposed to come out in 2014. So uh, trust me, it has it has been a long time coming for me too. But uh, one thing I I learned uh, and now know and will take into other facets of this job is you can't dictate the story, and if the story is not over, then your job is not over. And it you know it wasn't just Daniel Hudson getting hurt again and pushing it back. It was. Uh, waiting, you know, a year after, uh, or an off season at least, after Todd Coffey did not get called up uh, for spring training the next year. Because, you know, my, my editor, David Hershey, and I felt like that was really sort of the natural end of this book. Spring training, and just spring in general, uh, is about new beginnings. And uh, th- this, was his, this was his beginning, and this was his chance. And we wanted to, we felt like we owed it to him almost, because, you know, he had opened up his life for three years to me. The very least I could do for him uh, is, is give him another chance to uh, do what he wants to do and, and what he's aiming to do through the entirety of this book. Right, and I, I want to talk a lot more about coffee, obviously, but I, I want to, before we get too far away from the editor, because you mentioned him there, and talking about how, you know, the story... You had a you had a report through the end of the story. Was it easy for you to explain to 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 the publishers, uh, to the people who had paid f- for the book that, like, of course we wanted to do it in 2014, but for the betterment of the book, we need to wait. Like, was it easy to was it easy to explain that to to people who weren't as tied into the topic as you? Well, I'll tell you what helped with that was the fact that I was lazy and procrastinated and didn't put the proposal together uh, until about two years into the project. And, you know, my my procrastination actually worked out for the best there because I was able to be there when Daniel Hudson got hurt for the second time and and this story, which I think was a good story already, uh, really got interesting on a personal level. And... uh, you know, the look, the the great differentiator to me between an okay story and, and a really good one uh, is conflict. And there was immense amounts of conflict there now. And uh, it, it was something that, as a human being, I, I felt miserable and sick about. Uh, and as a writer, I felt like I'd been given a gift, and I'd better not screw this thing up. And so... Uh, I think because I went to the publisher uh, and, and tried to sell this after all of that happened, they understood that 
this story is kind of organic. And as much as I want to, uh, you know, as much as I want to say I will be done at X day, sometimes the story is going to dictate otherwise. And uh, the, the book is a hundred times better for their flexibility. Because if I had put it out a couple of years ago, I, I just wouldn't have had nearly uh, as, as much stuff and interesting stuff as I think I do now. Yeah, and you know, we've already talked about Hudson and Coffee, and, and they're just two of the people in the book. Uh, and I think one thing I didn't necessarily understand about it when I opened it was just how human it would be. Like, obviously, arms are part of humans, right? There needs to, If you're going to talk about the arm, you're obviously going to be talking about humans. But I think uh, what I liked most about it, maybe what engaged me most is just how human, how much the book became less about science and less about the billion-dollar mystery as much as about how the billion-dollar mystery is affecting humans and not just the humans that have the arm attached to the body, but like the Sarah Hudsons of the book, you know, or uh, Mrs. Coffey or... Uh, the general managers, or just you know, all the different people, and I think you did a great job of uh, uh, pulling uh, the human beings out. And I guess to make this a question, I wonder: when you started the project, how much did you realize it would be be about that, and how much did were maybe you even surprised at at how human the story got, and how how much? Yeah, there's this scientific part of it, but ultimately, it didn't end up being about that as much as maybe you anticipated. Yeah, I don't know that I can can write a story of this length without it turning into uh, an, an exploration of uh, the the human psyche and frailties and and all of the things that are involved there. Because I just I don't find stories like that personally all that interesting. I can't read science for three hundred pages, and, and I'd like to consider myself a fairly learned and interested person, but. Uh, I, I just can't go through that. I, I wanted to write this book uh, for readers like me. And a lot of it, honestly, was dependent on Daniel Hudson and Todd Coffey. I mean, they could have not been interested in this after they said yes. They could have shut me out. They could have clammed up. They could have uh, disliked me. Uh, you know, they could have gone a million different ways. But I think they were invested in it from the start, too, because especially Coffee understood what this entailed. He had been through it before. And, uh, you know, you read the book, you see he's a very a very open person. I mean, there's not a whole lot Todd Coffee uh, won't share. Right. But uh, I, think, I think he understood that the way to make the science interesting is to put a human face on it. And that was that was the goal here, and that that frankly was the imperative here. Because if I didn't do that, I think I I lose people. And you know, I I feel like it, it wasn't this way at the beginning. Uh, my first draft was was not structured like it is now. And I have to give David Hershey and Richard Rosen, my two editors on the project, uh, an immense amount of credit. The way it ended up being structured, I think it's almost like two stories right now. It feels a little like Full Metal Jacket ish to me. And that's one of my favorite movies, and I'm certainly not saying that this is anywhere near the caliber of that. But I feel like it's almost 
two stories on the same subject uh, that are told differently. And the first informs the second. So when you learn about the science and, and the mystery and everything behind it, that allows you to look at the human perspective uh, from a much wider lens than this is just two people coming back from an injury. No, this is two people coming back from an injury, but look at the context and the backdrop of it all, and uh, it gives it far more gravitas, I think. Did you have to go to a lot of players to find Coffee and Hudson, or did you find them earlier? What was the process like of, of locating maybe not even just the major league subjects, but the subjects in the book in general? They were my third and fourth tries, and, and they were really sort of 3 and 3A. Three uh, I really wanted Danny Duffy. Uh, it happened right after I had the idea. Uh, he was a Kansas City kid, so uh, I felt like, you know, the proximity was good. Uh, and I pushed, and I, I was kind of pathetic in how I pushed, uh, and he just was not interested. And, I look, I get it. I don't blame guys for not being interested in opening their lives up to a relative stranger uh, for the toughest 12 to 15 months they're probably ever going to have. Certainly uh, in their career, it's going to be the toughest 12 to 15 months. Uh, and so Danny Duffy said no, Brandon Beachy said no. Uh, and at that point, if you had Tommy John, I was going to ask. And uh, so I asked Hudson and Coffee essentially at the same time. Uh, and, uh, no, actually I think I asked Hudson and like five days later asked coffee and coffee almost immediately said, yes, uh, Hudson took a little bit of work, but Nick Pecora from the Arizona Republic, who's a, a good friend, uh, and a, a great reporter himself said, uh, he vouched for me to Hudson and I talked with Hudson's agent. This was at the all-star game. I think, uh, the year it was in Kansas city. Uh, and uh, I, I remember standing outside of Jack Stack Barbecue talking to Andrew Lowenthal, trying to convince him that uh, it would be a good idea for one of his best clients to be featured in a book. And it's a hard sell. I mean, it is, because I, I'm going to write the truth, and the truth can get very ugly. And so you have to have a lot of faith in the person uh, who's doing the chronicling to to be fair and to be respectful and uh, uh, you know thankfully both of them took that leap of faith because without them this book does not exist. Now that the book is a real thing and not just a thought, not just a potential place where the truth would be, do you think that they are happy that they did it overall? I do. Yeah, uh, I think they are. I, I think they feel like they were portrayed fairly and accurately and uh, warmly because, I, you know, having spent as much time with them as I did and having talked with them as much as I did, it's not that I have, and I do have an affinity for both, certainly, personally, but I think it's more that they feel like I understand them uh, as well as anybody outside of their family and, and what makes them go and... Uh, why they do this and, and why they want it to come back. And I hope that I captured that well. You know, the, the big leaguers with whom I've spoken uh, who have read the book said that it spoke to them in that way. And that's as, you know, that's about as high of a compliment as I can have. Because, look, whether we like it or not, athletes are different than us. 
they're different people. What makes them go is different. And uh, to, to understand that and, and to get to the place where they are, which is, I think, a, you know, what you have to do uh, with something like this when you spend as much time on it, it's, it's not an easy thing to get there and uh, to, to be empathetic uh, towards somebody who, frankly, is, is different than you and who you can never be like. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I had to put myself in a place where I'm not in life. I haven't had everything taken away from me. And uh, I haven't had, you know, my, my career and my livelihood threatened. And so uh, it took a little while to, to figure out what that meant. But I think once I did, uh, the connection was that much greater. You know, and I, and I don't know the stories of Duffy and Beachy exactly, but I think that, you know, the Steins, the stars aligned here for you because, you know, I'm oh, sure. Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm sure as you, you know, one thing that makes the book so hard to read in a, in a good way, like in a, oh, man, I, oh, I feel so bad for Hudson. The, the the contract that he didn't sign and just yeah. every page that you read you think about it really puts into perspective what he lost you know you're not yeah. you're not looking at him as you read the book as a super rich athlete that you know is eventually going to heal and will just find something else to occupy his time as he spends his millions you really get to to feel the loss with him i think especially yeah, and it's it's you know it's fun, it's funny too because uh, we moved the contract up. See, originally when I uh, when I filed the the first draft of the book, Hudson blowing out for the second time was actually chapter one. I did not start the operation, and uh, the editors felt like starting Hudson and Coffee both at the beginning of the book really muddled things up. And to me, like, the seminal moment of, of everything I saw was Hudson blowing out for the second time because I was there with him the whole time, and it was just, like, the most raw, emotional, you know, sad thing I think I've, I've ever seen. Like, it was it was really, really uh, uh, ripping on a, on a personal level to see somebody, you, you know, you like and respect, uh, and, and you know, you know that's it. I mean, you know what happened. And right. he knows too, but he was just trying to, and he was literally trying to drown away his sorrows. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the editors thought, uh, we need to start in the operating room because that is, that is going to punch people in the face right at the beginning. And I was scared. And, and I think this probably has happened with some people. I was scared I was going to lose people if we started in the OR just because it, it's graphic. Like, there's there's some gross stuff in there. You have to have a bit of an iron stomach to get through that chapter. But I think once you do, you you realize, holy shit, like this is bad. This is you know I think Tommy John is just something that a guy comes back from in twelve to fifteen months. No, this is like serious stuff going on here. Uh, and so uh, we we moved Hudson back uh, and we wanted to introduce him in the middle of the book. Uh, and I think it was I think he's in chapter seven or eight now. I don't think we had the contract until, like, the beginning of Chapter 10. I was going to introduce it as, uh, you know, okay, you saw this guy who blew out. Now guess what he lost. But I think putting what he had there at the beginning and then showing what he lost almost instantaneously uh, made it even more heart-wrenching. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I want to talk about the operating room in a second, but just about that day that, that Hudson blew out, 
that was in Jacksonville, is that right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, I remember that day because you must have just been on, like, really, and I must have known you were going to that. And I remember, like, watching on Twitter, like, trying to find out, I don't know if you were tweeting about it or if other people, and I think then we maybe text uh, real quickly about it that night. And then when I was reading the book and I was reading about you kind of hanging with them at the hotel after or whatever. Man, I was just trying to put myself in that room and thinking like it was the one time maybe I felt a little sympathy for you in a way. Like I was like I wonder how Jeff is – you know, and I say that as like a guy who's had a, a younger brother who's been a really huge athlete and I've been there when he lost state championship games, uh, when he right. broke his leg in Cornell his senior year. Like I know what it's like to be that other person. Uh, so maybe right. just from my personal experience, I was like, "Man, that's a really tough spot." I, I just couldn't imagine what it was like for you to be in that in that room um, and kind of how you handled it. Like, I don't know. I think I tried. I think I tried to, you know, uh, separate myself journalistically from the whole thing and just try to be a human being and be a friend and be there and just listen to him because and and I also was trying to keep his mind off it because he didn't he didn't need to be thinking about it I mean uh, you know when when some like okay this I I don't want to sound trite by comparing it to this but I'm going to go down there when somebody dies uh, you can sense very quickly whether they want to talk about the person who passed away or whether they want to keep their mind off of it. And I could tell very quickly he wanted to get his mind off of it. So uh, we just talked about everything else. And, you know, I I could see him looking at it. I could see him flexing and extending his arm. Uh, You knew it was on his mind, but uh, I was just, you know, you're you're there for support because uh, it was terrible. I mean, it was. And don't, don't feel bad for me. I mean, that, that's the very least that I could have done. Uh, and at, to that point, I mean, he had, he had given me, you know, 11 months of unfettered access to his life. Uh, I'm not going to take advantage of him at his most vulnerable moment at that point. But it, it's, it's still part of the story. And so it's still, you know, it still needed to be there in the book. And... I, I hope I told that part and uh, that people could see, you know, this this was a it was a tricky situation. And I, I think I handled it right. I don't know though. Yeah, no, All it right. felt right. It felt right. And and you know, I, I think I'm just speculating, but I, I I I'd be shocked if if that night and you being there, being the one that was there for him that night, I'm sure it made everything going forward. I I'm sure it brought you guys closer in a way. And you know, I thought it was interesting in the book where you would say, you know, and then Hudson texted me and wanted my opinion on whether or not he thought I should be a starter or a reliever. And I'm like, that was just a really cool indication of, like, how close the you and he must have gotten that he respects your opinion on such a huge career move and would reach out that way. Yeah, I don't don't know why he respects my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, though. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh I mean, I look. I, I'd like to think, at least, at least among writers, I probably know more about the than everyone. But uh, it was, you know, 
I, I don't know if 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 he felt closer to me after that day. I don't know. I, I do know that this, you know, the the worst part actually. I lied. It was not that night. Uh, it was when he found out, and uh, he called me up and he said, uh, you know, uh, the doctor says it's torn again. Uh, or torn again. Um, and, and I swear he said this, and it was just, it was the most heartbreaking thing in the world. He says, I hope I didn't ruin your book. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to say to him, you know, like from a journalist's perspective, no, the, the book just got better, actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, I, and I wasn't thinking that at the time, but, at, you know, afterward it was like, oh, man, you know, th- this is somebody who, at, at the worst moments of his life is, is sitting here and thinking about how it affects other people. Like, that's a, that's a good dude right there. That's a very good person. You know, it's funny you talked about how, as a writer, you feel more educated about the arm. And as a reader of your book, I now feel like you've granted me some kind of, uh, some kind of, enough information for me to feel from afar like I can. Like when the kid got taken out during the no-hitter, you know, the other day, I'm thinking like, oh man, you know they just they 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 don't have his pitch co- count up where it should have been at this point, and 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 they're just operating out of fear. You know, like like I have these opinions now about the arm, like I am <laughs> some kind of expert for reading this book, where before I just assumed they were doing the right thing and that there must be right. some kind of science behind it. Where you well, know, listen, listen, I mean, a, a big part of this, a big part of the reason I did this was was not just to satisfy my own personal curiosities, but to educate people, because I feel like the not not just the baseball watching public, but the baseball coaching and the baseball parenting public are ignorant as hell with this. And this is the very last thing that anybody who's involved with baseball needs to be ignorant about. This is something that everybody needs to know because it's such an imperative part of the game now that. And hell, we just—I mean, we just saw it today. You know, yeah. I think mean, one one of the best younger pitchers in baseball needs Tommy John surgery. What's the deal? Yep, and I think Moneyball was like that too a decade or two ago, where we needed to read that to kind of understand it better. And I think that um, yeah, this is this isn't Moneyball. Let's no, I, I know it's not. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> you, made, you made the point that we needed to learn this stuff, and I think we needed to learn money. I didn't know anything about Moneyball before I read it. Or the concepts of it, you know. Oh yeah, I think I I, I don't think a lot of people understood. Uh, I mean, hell, even after reading Moneyball for years, I was not as educated of a writer as I should be, and it took some time. And it takes look, it takes effort to understand this. Like these concepts are, they're not easy. Yeah, and I mean, it was like Jonah you know, Carey. That, that is that, that is advanced statistics for a country of people who don't like math. Right. And this is medicine and science for a country that's not altogether interested in understanding the what's and the why's. They just, you know, they just want to pill. Make me better, Doc. So, uh, and, and to some extent, I, I still don't understand a lot of it. I mean, I'm confident about usage and, and knowing what's right there, but... As far as biomechanical stuff goes, I mean, I have ideas, I have thoughts, but there are so many people out there who think they're right, and I, I couldn't say who's right and who isn't. 
I, I honestly just don't know. I, I, I'm not confident enough at this point to say one way or another that uh, this person uh, has a chance to solve this. Yeah, and I think one thing I took away from the book uh, was that the truth is that many of the questions you hope to answer uh, for the book just don't have answers yet. So Yeah, I mean, you know, Garrett Richards is a perfect example. I mean, Garrett Richards is 27 years old, so he's out of the injury nexus, right? And uh, he survived for years throwing baseballs in the mid to high 90s. And now his UCL goes. Why now? He hasn't changed his mechanics. Um, he's been throwing hard for a long time. What was it that made it go at this point? Was it cumulative? Uh, was it acute? Uh, I, I honestly, listen, I wish I could tell you. I wish I could say this is the reason why. And, we, you know, we look at velocities, and Garrett Richards' went when he was 27, almost 28. Uh, and Matt Harvey's went when he was 24, I think, maybe 25. Right. How uh, old and Jose Smoltz? Fernandez's went when he, when he was 21. And you know, what, eight, right? what's the difference among those guys? They have the commonality of velocity, but... What's the difference there that caused them to go at different ages? That's a question that I still do not know the answer to. And frankly, I'm not sure that we're ever going to know the answer to that. All right. The Swordscats are here with Jeff Passon, the author of The Iron Inside, The Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. Uh, obviously, it's available where books are sold and ebook formats. It's been uh, number one or number two or number three, something like that, on an iTunes sports books. Uh, I wrote a glowing review of it there. You can find that. Um, and of course, Amazon and things like that. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, you're talking about the, the part that opens the book, um, inside the, the emergency room. It's a really cool part. And I, I was thinking about how writing this book has taken you as a reporter, uh, to very different areas, uh, that your, your regular beat does for Yahoo, uh, covering baseball. I mean, you were in emergency rooms, doctor's offices, youth baseball tournaments, um, all these different places. Did you, did you enjoy the variety of it, or did sometimes did you feel uh, overwhelmed uh, by uh, you know, the lack of uh, general knowledge that you had for certain subjects as compared to when you're covering baseball and you feel very confident about your understanding of, uh, of the subject? How did you feel as a reporter reporting in the different areas that the book takes you? So two different things. Number one, uh, being inside that operating room was, I think, the coolest four hours I've ever had as a reporter. It was it was fascinating just to see somebody's livelihood be given back to him uh, by this, you know, by this genius procedure that was dreamt up by a doctor. I mean, think about modern medicine. But, you know, in, in the book, I think. I've known about this for a while, but I think what's new to a lot of people is the way uh, that back in the, the 40s and 50s and earlier than that, if a guy had a, an injured arm, they used to pull his teeth. And that that is so shocking to people, and understandably so. What the hell does the teeth have to do with the arm, you ask? Well, duh. I mean, <laughs> but back then, they knew so little about it that they they thought that, you know, there was poison leaking from the teeth down into the shoulder. And it's just like, wow, we've gone from there to this place where they are taking uh, a dead man's leg tendon and making a new elbow out of it. That, that to me, it was, I mean, it was miraculous. It was beautiful to witness. 
Um, the second part, and this goes for a lot of different things, I feel like I do my best work when I am uncomfortable in a situation. Hmm. Because when I'm reporting on baseball, I'm not as curious as I am in other places because I've done it for 13 years and I know it. And I might not ask the dumb question that's actually not a dumb question but a profound question because I feel like I understand it better. So when I'm in a place that I'm not familiar, I'm willing to ask better questions to, to try and inform my perspective that much more. I'm, I'm thirstier for knowledge that way, and I think uh, you get at the root of details. But don't get me wrong. If you're working a beat, I feel like you have to know your, your subject, your league, uh, the person, whatever it may be, forward and backward. But it's why I like doing the Olympics every couple of years and why I like covering an NFL game if the Chiefs are in the playoffs or like covering a golf tournament, uh, it takes me out of my comfort zone. And I think there's something uh, very, very refreshing about that. Right, or going to Kansas and Oklahoma and seeing an epic uh, oh, triple oh, overtime basketball oh. game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know what? I, I didn't even, uh, you walk in there and you don't know who the good quotes are. You don't know uh, what the, you know, what the protocol is post-game. And so I hustled my ass off that night, and I I think I wrote a really good story from that game. Yeah, so do uh, I. And I, I was proud of it. Yeah, that was great. Uh, you know, not just reporting, but also uh, post um, post book, you've done I think a lot of unique things promoting it. You know, it's nothing for you to come on here and chat with a dope like me, but. I'm assuming it was pretty cool to do something like an AMA or Facebook Live or to go on NPR or uh, Richard Deitch's podcast. Uh, what has been fun for you or interesting for you or unique for you about promoting the book? The fact that nobody knows that the majority of the promotion was done from inside of my car. <laughs> well, I know that. I'm used to talk. I, I do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. But this is, no, this is, see, this is different. Okay. This was not the inside of my car when I'm on the road. I actually, there, my, my house uh, has all uh, maple flooring. And so my house is like a, like if you drop something on the floor, it echoes throughout the entire house. Uh-huh. And, and so uh, in order to keep things quiet, I literally had to go into my garage and sit inside of a parked car for, for eight hours a day, just talking on the radio. And it was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty gnarly. I won't lie. Besides this, do you have a favorite spot where you've talked about the book? Do I have a favorite spot? Yeah. Like, did you like, Man, it was so fun being on NPR or, you know, something like that. Oh, okay. I thought you, you know. meant, like, a spot in my car. No, yeah, uh, the, the passenger seat was amazing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I wore out the driver. I wore out the driver's side, so I went to the passenger's. Uh, oh, what was the coolest spot? I mean, NPR. You know why NPR is cool? Because all of my really smart friends suddenly gained a whole new level of respect for me. Ah. And I feel like I feel like I've always just been the, the, the sports writer, but all of a sudden I was hearing from people I hadn't heard from in years. 
they're like, oh my God, you were on NPR? And and I, I felt like that made them proud. And so uh, that that was uh, that was pretty cool. I'm surprised a little bit that you don't get that when you're on this show, but yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, the the sports okay. ca- the sportscaster. Are you gonna are you gonna re- are you gonna replace Terry Gross? Probably. I'm sure they're they're considering me. I'm gonna get a long look. You know, it's to be. Um, yeah, uh, the sportscaster are here with finishing with our friend Jeff Passan, whose book, uh, "The Arm Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports," has been featured in our book club for the last uh, six weeks, but really has been a feature on this show for the last three years. Uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff Passan, of course. There, if you want to uh, uh, read his tweets, if you enjoyed the book, he's now you know the. It's like when James Andrew Miller wrote that ESPN book. Now, anytime anything happens with ESPN, you know, people go to him and his Twitter and want to hear his opinions. And I've noticed that's happening with you about the pitching arm. That has happened. Yeah, it's and it's pressure because I did not spend 10 years getting a medical degree. So uh, my my opinions sometimes, I think, are going to be a little more centrist than people are looking. I, I've, I've learned that having really strong opinions on the arm uh, only opens you up to looking, uh, to, to looking like a, like an idiot. So, uh, I try to hedge a little bit, uh, but I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that I don't, I don't have the solutions by any means, but at very least I have, have a decent working sense of what's going on. Yeah. I really noticed it with the, the no hitter in the Dodgers game or not the Dodgers. Why am I thinking the Dodgers thinking the Dodgers? Cause Mattingly took the guy out. But Manningly's well, no, but yeah, there was there Marlins. was the Ross Stripling one too. Oh yeah, that's right. Maybe that's why I was thinking the Dodgers. But it was really the Marlins game when I really was really noticed uh, how much going forward now your career is going to change a little bit in the sense that people are going to want to talk to you when things happen to players' arms, and I, I think that's kind well. Of cool. I, and, li- and, and listen from a from a from a purely uh, and and I will readily admit this from a purely you know careerist point of view uh that's not unintentional like right yeah I these get days that. these these days to to be a journalist who has a long career uh you need to have something that you can fall back on and uh as much as i would like to think that my baseball reporting just in general would do that who knows i mean there's some really really good reporters out there, there are people ken rosenthal does a much better job than i do and and so I think there will always be a place for him. But uh, I'd like to think that, you know, having that in my back pocket, knowing that Tommy John surgery is going to be around for a long time and that, you know, people need to understand it better and having access to the doctors and the researchers and the people uh, who are doing this, uh, I, I feel like it's important that a reporter, if not me, has that. And uh, thankfully they were... Yeah, they were very open to the idea, and uh, I mean, the reception of the book has been nothing short of phenomenal. I mean, it's it's been it has so far exceeded any expectations that I had because I, I don't know if the guys you have on who uh, you know who write books have this feeling too, but I I did not know if this was any good. I I really didn't, and I'm not saying that to right. sound like you know. I, I'm not. I'm just being dead honest with you. I thought it was pretty good, and, and I was proud of what I'd done, but I did not know how it was going to be received. And it wasn't until 
Sam Miller, uh, who actually has a, a really, really good new book out uh, as well, read it and, and told me that he liked it, that uh, I, I then thought, okay, I feel good. Because Sam and I are acquaintances, but we're, we're sort of, I wouldn't call us like friends by any means. We're just more like, you know, we respect one another's work. And for him to say that, uh, that meant a lot. All right, last thing. Let's get you out of here on this. And I know you've you've talked about this once already, and I hate to repeat stuff, but it's so relevant to this show, so I have to do it. Uh, I, I know you talked uh, in various places about how Sandy Koufax uh, was the the prize to to get him. That was so important to you, and and you really wanted to be able to sit down with him. And the interesting thing, and the reason I bring it up on this show, is because you know in the pantheon of important sportscasters guests. Uh, you're certainly on the list, uh, you know, Lee Jenkins, Richard Deitch, and Jane Levy is maybe at the top of the list, and she was a real interesting yeah, link. She is a, yeah, she is at the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, personally, like, for she's been so important. Her acceptance of us, uh, the respect that she gives us, the fact that she's come on so many times, you know, the fact that she'll randomly comment on a picture from my wedding on Facebook, like, to be able to, you know, say to other people she's someone who respects the show has been huge for us and i know there's a connection there so i thought maybe you could say the tell the story of that and then we'll let you go jane is a wonderfully generous person she's amazing she's she's one of the first people i reached out to uh to try and get in touch with sandy and uh she suggested that i write a letter to him so i spent days maybe weeks like crafting this letter and you know, aching over every word. And like a week after I sent it, it got returned to sender because Kofax didn't have the PO box anymore where I sent it. <laughs> so that was like, that was like a good old dick punch right there. And we, uh, I, I get in touch with the Dodgers again. And honestly, I'd given up hope, but, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Jane had reached out to Sandy and said, uh, you should talk with him. Uh, this, this book has a chance to be really good. And, uh, he'll treat you well, and God, I mean, talk about talk about just feeling amazing when somebody who's written the best baseball books of the past decade uh, is saying those kinds of things about you and going to bat for you like that. It's I mean, it meant a lot. I, I will forever be in her debt for that, and uh, I cannot repay that kindness, no matter how hard I try. But I will certainly try. Right, and that's amazing, and, and believe it or not, she did that with us with a guest. I think a little bit more in, unintentionally, uh, they were just talking, and he had mentioned that she he would had this request, and she said, "Oh, I know that, and I have a lot of fun doing that, or whatever." So, um, all right, Jeff Pass- Jeff Passan is the author. He's at Jeff Passan on Twitter. Uh, the Iron Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports uh, is available now in bookstores and Amazon and all those places. Anything else you want to mention on that side, the promotion side? Yeah, just go buy the book. Yes, please do. <laughs> there's, you know, there's lots in there. It's not just the major league stuff that you asked about. Yeah, the kids uh, stuff we just didn't get there's, to. There's, yeah, there is. There's a lot. There's a lot. This book uh, is as much for uh, parents and coaches as it is for anyone. And those are the most important people out there. So if you are a parent or a coach uh, or anybody who is literate. Uh, I urge you to buy this book. Yeah, one of the top picks maybe in this year's baseball draft is a figure in this book. 
Sure is. Riley Pine. Yeah. He's be the so. first right-hander to go number one overall. So and that will be an go. amazing. Get up on your draft knowledge. And that will be an amazing column from you if he does go first overall, or even if he goes third overall. Yeah, he's, he's, I don't think he's going first. So right. he should. He will be a top. Ten, he will be a top ten pick, and he is. I, I think most people agree he is the most talented player in the draft. It's just a question of whether he will realize that talent. All right. Thanks, Bud. Have a good weekend. Talk to you or maybe right, around you, all-star game-ish, something like that. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks to uh, Jeff Passon for being on the show. Uh, that ends the Book Club Book of the Month for the arm inside the billion-dollar mystery of the most valuable commodity in sports uh, by the before-heard Jeff Passon. Uh, so where do we go next, Don? Well, simple. Uh, Stephen Hyden, who was on a few months ago uh, to talk to us, has a book called out this month called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. Uh, so that will be the next book club book of the month. And remember, he told us about this book, and it's basically about rivalries in rock. Oh, okay. So there is a Pearl Jam and Nirvana chapter. There's a Blur and Oasis chapter. Uh, what else did he mention? Beatles and Rolling Stones, I'm sure, is an obvious chapter. I wonder, I mean, the Pearl Jam Nirvana one was huge, but everything that's come out since then has kind of been, like, gets he invented. Has, he has said publicly in this show that he thinks Cameron Crowe stretched the truth about the truce between Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to read all that. That will be the next book club, Book of the Month. We'll talk. Uh, to Steven, we'll see if we got a copy to give away, and we'll have him on sometime in May or early June. I don't know what the podcast schedule is really going to be in May and June. Uh, we do know we won't be here next week, uh, but who knows when we'll be gone and when we'll be here in June. So, But we'll have him on uh, when we get to it. All right, we got a long interview with Jeff Perlman coming up, so let's cut this out and go to that. I, a number of years ago, I heard a young father a very prominent young man in the entertainment world, addressing a tremendous gathering in California. It was during the time of the Cold War, and communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. All right, our next guest is from Mayo Pack, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. He is an author. He used to write for Sports Illustrated. He's a documentarian, and he's making his seventh appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jeff Perlman. What's going on, Jeff? Am I, is that, am I the record holder or no? I'm not. Oh, God, no. Lee Jenkins is uh, sitting pretty on the top with 20. Holy, you got Lee Jenkins on 20? Guys haven't even written the book, and I'm only at seven? Come on. <laughs> You know what the sad thing is, though? And it's okay, and I understand, but he's really not that into it anymore. He's not? He's no. lost interest? Yeah, he's kind of lost interest, I think. And it's okay. 
I mean, he did 20 more times than he ever needed to. But so I have a chance to overtake him. If I, think, I just pretend I'm interested, I could, I, could, I could shoot past him. You know, there was a time where I could message him, and he'd be like, I'm in my hotel room about to go to game one of the, the NBA finals. But, yeah, let's do 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, like he was like that, and now he's like, "Nah, maybe oh you God. know, three That's weeks, so three weeks from now, maybe." And I, I'm just say, "All right, yeah, all right, let's do it in three weeks." So That's awesome. I know yeah. Lee well. Lee's a yeah, great he, oh, guy. he's an I'm unbelievable sure, like, guy. The nicest, he's just, one of the he's nicest. A bur- he's a busy guy. He's a busy oh, guy. absolutely. He's a man of of many of many hats these days too. He's got his own podcast on SI now, you know, mm-hmm. and Kobe Bryant retiring. Yeah, oh, he's an amazing yeah. guy, and um, yeah. you know, I always tell people like we've doing this six seasons probably about 40 shows a season or so now you know yeah. like he's probably the nicest guy and if it's not him it's damon hack maybe i mean those are like the nicest realist guys hey, what the hell man well you're never gonna say the guy you're talking to if i was talking to damon uh-huh. hack you know i might say oh, well you know lee and jeff you know if i was talking yeah, to jeff passan who's another one i like a lot or who's on who's the, the biggest jerk who's the biggest jerk you've had that actually came out, or the biggest jerk that didn't come out? Because we've had a few of those. Like, give me both. All right, well, Seth Davis is easily the biggest jerk. Easily, what? by a million miles, the biggest asshole what? of all time. Yes. I can't even believe this. Seth he is sent, a good friend of mine. He what sent he me do? the rudest email ever. What did he say? So, um, it was obviously March, not quite March Madness, but it was getting to that point where you would think about wanting to talk about college basketball. And... Um, it was also in a time where we were very SI heavy, you know, like uh, Lee Jenkins or um, Richard Deitch was on the second episode and Joe Poznanski mm-hmm. was on the sixth and like Lee Jenkins was on yeah, the yeah, eighth. Time in there. Yeah. So like, and Wertheim was, it, his book had just come out, uh, Scorecasting. So he was on really early mm-hmm. too. And, um, you know, so like those guys kind of gave us a start in our credibility, you know, of like people saying mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a place where you can go to, to exist. And I think it was Deitch who told me to email him. Um, it was very early. I figured out that you could email anyone at SI because everyone had the same email if you knew their name. Yep. You yep. know, so that was something that I learned early. So I just emailed him, and I sent out a, a pretty thoughtful pitch. And I think in the pitch I said, well, you know, uh, I'm really excited about the tournament. I want to talk about who would make it, who could make a good run. And he wrote me back. This sounds like a really fun thing to do after the tournament or, you know, in April. I think he said in April. Yeah. I guess I just wrote him back and said, well, thanks, but we wanted to talk about stuff that wouldn't be relevant in April. So no thanks. And then he wrote me like a scathing inter- like a scathing reply about what a prick I was and how condescending I was. And I thought it was harmless. I mean, I just was. I have a, pr- I have a- I have a thought. I'm being serious about this. So yeah. I know Seth really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, I love Seth. I truly do. And I have to think somewhere there's a misunderstanding here. I really do. He's one of the, he's a truly good guy. So I believe there's a misunderstanding and I want to broker a piece. <laughs> well, I'd love to have him sometime. I mean, I don't have anything against him personally. Yeah. I love his work. I love watching mm-hmm. him on TV. So I'd always be down. I'm, I'm going to sure broker a piece. He has no idea that he has no idea he holds this distinction. I mean, he sent out the right. second email well, this, and forgot about when, us forever. When this podcast... When this podcast airs, I'm going to have him listen to it, and I'm going to say, Seth, this guy's podcast sucks, but you should go on. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> well, if we were to make up with Seth, then the new guy in line on that side would be, uh, uh, what's his name? Bill Barnwell. Who is the I don't only, even know who that is. He was the only not nice guy from Grantland. 
He wrote about football for him? Grantland. Yeah. He was just a jerk too. Like, you know, you sign him an email and he like I had a kind of a spy at, at Grantland who would give me people's emails kind of on the down low, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's how I got his and he was real fun that I had his email. Like, you know, it's like, how did you get my email? And I was like, well, I have a, I know a publicist who gave me thousands of emails. So he didn't like that. And then, I mean, I hate to disparage anyone who came on, but Michael Farber was not very nice. So. Oh, Farber's great. Maybe he was in a bad mood. That that one's my fault, I bet. Because Pavel Bure was not in the Hockey Hall of Fame yet, and he was a Hockey Hall of, he's like practically the board member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh And uh, I just, I, Voice some displeasure about Pavel Bray not being in. So he, he didn't like that, I don't think. Yeah, Farber's a great guy. Seth is a great guy. I don't know the guy from Grantland. Yeah, but, um, and um, like with Farber, he was at least honest after. He kind of just said, like, thanks for having me, but I would never do this again. I kind of, appreci- I kind of appreciate that honesty, actually. I'd maybe take that yeah. one back. Because, you know, I don't, I don't mind that. Like, okay, you did, you know, even no matter what happened, he might even say, like, yeah, I did it once, and I felt like that was enough. And that would be fine. Yeah. So uh, maybe that's yeah. not fair. It's hard for me to pick someone who came on because pretty much everyone who's come on has been nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a piece between Seth Davis, who probably doesn't even know this. He has no this, clue. Yeah. Happening He's like, wait, what? Yeah. Who? Because this is like 2011. <laughs> so he definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, has no <laughs> idea. But <laughs> you know who tried to broker a piece, but at the time was Deitch. And um, he did it. I think he was having fun with it, Seth, by the end. Like, Seriously, we're like sending tweets about this, like to each other, like thinky. And then Richard was, you know, pouring gasoline. Really, he wasn't really trying to broker any peace. You know, he was just trying to. uh... That's funny. Yeah. So I like both those guys. I like all those guys. That's uh, I don't know the guy from Grantland, but I well, those guys are good people. You know, Deitch is obviously like uh, I don't know how to put it, but we're kind of connected in a lot of ways. Deitch is Mm -hmm. we're certainly connected to Deitch. Deitch is a lot more famous than us. I don't think that he has that as much. But mm-hmm. certain people would definitely think of us as in the same to some degree. So Yeah. Yeah. I love Deitch. Deitch is a great guy. In fact, um he doesn't even know this, but early on in my career that I must have been I don't know who got there first, him or me. I kinda of think I did, but maybe I didn't. But um one day I was like kind of on I was like just working my way up and I remember where I was at some party where a bunch of SI people were and he goes, Perlman, you're a really good writer. And I always remember him saying that. And thinking that was like the coolest thing. Even I, I don't think I even knew who he was at the time. He probably barely knew who I was. But uh, I always remember him saying that. So I've always liked him. He's good people. Well, it was an honor for me to make him famous. So Yeah. There you go. You did yeah, it. Yeah. Nice work. So I, uh, and I'd like to thank you for making me non-famous. <laughs> you haven't done much for you, huh? You know what, though? <laughs> I will say that I, I almost shed a tear uh, watching your documentary because it still frustrates me very much. That when you talk about sweetness, seemingly in any context, the only thing that comes up is the Dickas and Wilbons and the frustration and the bad taste in your mouth. You know, but when I think of sweetness, I think of it being probably my favorite sports book, uh, the first book club book of the year on my podcast, the first time we talked to you. It's, I just think of it as this just unbelievable piece of work. And I agree that I think it's probably the best thing you're ever going to do. And I wish that there was some way for you to not focus on that stuff and focus well, more on the achievements so of funny. it. 
I think we had this exact conversation last time. Um, oh, jeez, yikes. No, 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 I'm cool with that. I, I, but the thing is, um, a lot of that was for the, I mean, I do, I am still pissed off. A lot of that was also uh, speaking to the point right, in the documentary the about right, yeah. So and it's I not like that. I'm, I get that. My day-to-day existence is not haunted by sweetness, you know. And hopefully it's not the best thing I write. Hopefully there'll be something better. Who the hell knows that? Yeah, I was thinking about that with Pearl Jam the other day because people are getting all excited about how they played 10 in its entirety at a concert the other day. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And my brother was there, and um, he was there with one of his teammates, or old teammates now, and it was his. It was the teammate's first show, and I was like, oh, it's so cool that he got to be there on a historic night in Pearl Jam history. Mm-hmm. And then I was talking to people about it, and they were like, were you upset you weren't there? And I'm like, not really. I really wouldn't want to hear 10 in its entirety because I mean, there's not a song on 10 that I haven't heard less than 10 times except for Oceans. And I like the fact right. that Oceans is special. It's my first song, and I've only heard it once since. And I just don't want to hear those songs that much. And if I go and they don't play 10, they're going to play five songs from 10 anyway, and that's enough. So, but um, you know, but you know it can I ask you a favor? Yeah. Can I tell you a great story about Pearl Jam's 10? Oh, sure. I love Pearl Jam's 10. Okay. I love that album. And um, I was in college. As you know, I went to the University of Delaware. And um, my friend... <laughs> Paul used to belong to a really like a nasty fraternity on campus. By nasty, I mean like gross house. Um, I was not in a fraternity, but gross house and like big, the, it was like the popular fraternity on campus. And um, Thailand, the five, maybe, I don't remember. Anyway, and I remember one time I went there and um, I got really drunk as college kids do. And I'm hooking up with a girl on the dance floor and she had maybe the worst acne in human history. And I was so camping on the dance floor because I was drunk in 20, whatever. And Pearl Jam's black, uh, Pearl Jam's, uh, yeah, black. Black, yeah. Playing. And um, now every single time I hear black, which is a great song. That's the best I think song of the ever. Girl, mm-hmm. I think of the girl with the acne face and me shoving my tongue down her throat. And it's been scarred forever. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great thing. That's something I love about Pearl Jam is, I mean, you could come, you could name any song, and I could tell you a memory about it because it's been the soundtrack of my life. Their music has. Um, yeah. But the point I think was just about how, with that album, and then they played the Garden. Uh, I was having a discussion about with a friend about what the best Garden show was, and it's kind of unanimously considered this show that they played in 1998 on September 11th, actually. And 98 is the best garden show. And I always think about it, and it's like, well, Matt Cameron was only in the band for like five months then, and I hate to think that they haven't played. They've played there eight times since, and they haven't played one show better than that one. You know, and the same with 10. It's like 25 years, they've made nine other albums, and none of them are better than 10, really. Like, I mean, I think they've made probably three bit better than 10, maybe four. But it's just, and no one's going to think that, obviously, just because it's, it's not really about what's best. It's just about what, was most most culturally impactful, I guess. So, Wait, so this wasn't about me hooking up with a girl on the dance floor. Well, no, that was your experience. No, no, but I was going with because you were talking about how you hope per- sweetness wasn't the best thing you ever wrote. Oh, right. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you know, and it's the 25th anniversary of sweetness, and you're getting ready to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the Book Writing Hall of Fame. Like, it's 25 years of 10, and Pearl Jam's getting ready to go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, you'll hope that 
sometime in between then and the 25 years, you did something better. I'm sure they would say. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully my last book, to be honest. I know there's this one song on Binaural called Sleight of Hand, which you've never heard, I'm sure. Um, mm. And um, I know that that's one that I bet Eddie Vedder would say he's one most proud of. Because he always used to introduce it um, when they played it a lot on the Binaural Tour in 2000. It was you know on the album they were promoting. Like, he would always say about how other musicians told him that this was like a real masterpiece of his writing. And... Um, so I always I always use that as an example of like average guy in the concert thinks that now let me think of one that Ed wrote on ten he wrote almost all of them uh, black is the best thing he ever wrote and he thinks it's this thing that guy never heard of called sleight of hand yeah. you know and maybe you will think I'll think that sweetness is the best thing you ever wrote and then fifteen years from now you'll think it's the Roger Clemens book that you told me not to read or something probably it won't be well, you that know, but you know maybe. It, it's interesting. I just had this conversation. There's a writer out here, a really, really good writer for the Orange County Register named uh, Mirren Feder. And uh, she's a young writer. And uh, she wrote this story recently for the uh, about this women's basketball team. Uh, anyway, long story short, she, she didn't really love how it was edited. And we had this conversation, and um, she hated the edited version of the story. And, you know, but the editor, they put it in the newspaper, and everyone loved it, right? And like she was embarrassed by the story at first, and everyone loved the story. Everyone who read it praised it and loved it, and blah blah blah. And uh, and she, I, in her head, I'm sure she's thinking, "No, don't you get it? Like the story sucks. The original was so great, and blah blah blah." And you kind of realize that, like, what you love as a writer um, doesn't always translate to what others love, and like sometimes what other people love, you just don't understand at all, you know? Or like you're like, I think Eminem hated his his rehab album. And, like, people love that album. And you just never know. I'm sure Eddie Vedder has songs that people love off of 10. Where he's like, what? That's your favorite song? You know, Jeremy, I was 22 in Stone when I wrote that. You, that's your favorite song? And, you know, you just never know what's going to take with people and what people are going to like and not like. It's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, and it's like that, um, that show I was talking about, The Garden, that's like kind of the most famous and many considered the best show they played, period. Uh, it's because of a fan. It kind of, I think, the love for it grows out of this like fan. There was like ten thousand signs in the in the stands when they came back on for the encore that said "breath," and it was the the culmination of like it building from six signs like five shows before, you know. And then they finally played it with the ten thousand signs, and so I think that's why. And, and "breath" is like it's a song that was on the single soundtracks, not on a Pearl Jam album, but that was the one that ten thousand people wanted to see that night. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. That's kind of neat. Yeah. You seem to like Pearl Jam. That's just a tip. That's just a thing I noticed. Yeah, I've been to 78 shows. (laughs) I haven't been in a while, but thank God I'm going next week to two, so I'll get to 80 finally. So I've been stuck at 78 for a while. It sucked. Is your wife a big Pearl Jam fan? uh, Well, uh, she's enjoyed many shows. I think she's been to nine shows. Or she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? She's like, what the hell? No, it's not that. Somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. You know, like... Uh, on her honeymoon, when I went to Britney Spears with her, and that's kind of more her speed of music. But yeah. um, you know, when we're driving around in the car. I'm not listening to Britney Spears, so you know she's she's um, she's uh, found herself some favorites and has enjoyed the 
experiences. I think she likes a lot more the travel and the cities when we go to shows than the actual shows, you know. Does she know all the words to To what song? Hit me, baby, one more time. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Good band right there. Yuck. yuck. It's not for me. (laughs) I went to to the bathroom in the middle of the Britney Spears concert, and I actually met a guy who hated it more than me. I walked into the bathroom, and there's this guy who was literally banging his head on the wall above the urinal. I mean, did she even sing any of it? Like, did she sing? Barely at all. Concert? Maybe one song. Yeah, it's I don't a joke. Get it. Yeah, I don't it's get a it. Joke. But I, yeah. she loved it, and I was like, I ask her, and I ask people this all the time: you like a singer, but when you go to their show, you would prefer them not to sing and to dance instead. And she just says, "Yeah, yeah,", yeah. and I'm like, I don't get that at all. I don't get it either. But but that, whatever, you know, whatever. you, you yeah. do special things, I guess, on your honeymoon, one time things. And I have a daughter now, so I'm sure, you know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be seven years from now, I'll be doing something I never thought I would for her, too. So, um, My advice to you on your daughter is play a lot of, uh, start her out on some old school hip hop. Stuff goes over with kids awesome. I'm not even joking. Run DMC, <laughs> Houdini, stuff like that. It's so made for kids. <laughs> I don't know anything you, about it. So. I'm telling you. Run DMC. Play her some Run DMC. You'll see. It goes over well. Like, uh, Curtis, what's his name? The, the Curtis Blow. Yeah, Curtis Blow. Rapping basketball. Yeah, very nice. Curtis Blow every day. She borrows money from the mob. That could be bad. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know anything about hip hop, whether it be from the nineteen seventies or the two thousand and ten. So she'll have to She'll have to go elsewhere for that. If she wants to talk about rock and roll from nineteen fifty to two thousand sixteen, I can do that. Uh, what about some Prince? Would you play a Prince? I mean, I respect Prince. I'm not a big fan of his music. I've kind of enjoyed the last couple of weeks. Or actually, I saw on Twitter today that it was literally seven days and however many hours, whatever the line is in that song. Like, oh. that, that happened today. Yeah. What's wow, that? That's interesting. And, uh, but I've enjoyed since then watching other people do his work. So I have a lot of respect for him. I know he's great. I yeah, knew he was course. great before he died. Um, yeah, he was pretty amazing. Not, never necessarily for me. Um right. A little, a little experimental and kind of all over the place, and I respect that a lot. Um, and hey, I was nineteen uh, on December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. So I probably danced to that song that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. most definitely. Um, Springsteen did a great cover of Purple Rain on it. So yeah, I it did. Really- I did see it. Yep, at the Pearl Jam show that night, they they didn't play the whole thing, but uh, the guitar player played a few licks a few times. Um, what else did I see? Yeah, Springsteen's was good. Oh, the Adam Levine did an amazing thing at Howard Stern's oh, birthday yeah, party. Oh, yeah, that was good. Man, that was good. Yeah, who knew that guy could play guitar like that? Did anyone know that? Yeah, that guy's kind of talented. Yeah, that guy's uh, actually good. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, his song would just fall into the... Or his music would fall into the category of just really not for me. A little soft for yeah, me. Kind of not... Yeah. Probably not writing it for me anyway, so I don't think I hurt his feelings. But um, <laughs> clearly, he's much more talented than the music he makes... In his yeah, in his day job, yeah, I agree with that. So that was really good, I, and they've played that a lot. I, I listen to Howard every day, and they've played it coming in and out of breaks and on Sternthology or whatever on Howard One Hundred and One. So yeah, there's yeah, been a lot of great good. stuff. Uh, he'll be missed for sure. It's been a rough year for musicians, huh? Yeah, very strange. Merle Haggard, yep. Prince, Lemmy, uh, Fife from Tribe Called Quest, and Lemmy. Yeah, it's been weird. Bowie, but David Bowie, David Bowie, yeah. David Bowie, yeah. Jeez. 
And this always happens with wrestlers. It's always a big Yeah, because like, wrestlers all take all these drugs. Well, I guess so they're musicians. It's going to say, yeah, well, the yeah. wrestlers are all like taking these extracting, you know, goat hormones and putting them in their brains. But yeah. Yeah, there's this game on the iPhone that I play with uh, friends. And there's a category you have to name someone who died young. And I feel like every time I write a wrestler or a musician. Like everyone yep. I know in life who died young, they were either a wrestler or a musician. That's a bummer. And wrestlers have had That's a t- tough year too. Blackjack Mulligan just died. Roddy Piper died earlier in the year, in the summer. Oh yeah, Piper. Yeah, you know I'm. Uh, I told you, I, you know, I'm friends with uh, with a wrestler. Do you know this? No, I don't know what what wrestler. You know Tommy Dreamer. Is? Oh yeah, I know. oh yeah, I, I think I do. I, maybe you didn't tell me, but I know the. I know you said there's a connection. Is he from where you're Tommy from? Maybe? Dreamer. Tommy Dreamer. Um, this is a true story. We were the two dads pick up our kids eventually or New Rochelle every day. It'd be me and Tommy Dream and all mothers. Are you friends with Beulah? Love her. <laughs> I bet. I don't know, know anything about anything. I just saw this guy at pickup and someone went, oh, the festival. It was like, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's you guys are the two guys who are here. And it's there, you know, it's a crossover. There's some different people and I've done some wrestling stories every now and then. Um, he's a great guy, and she's—they're like—they're terrific. They're there every they're kids. They're awesome. Yeah, Tommy's a dreamer. Tommy Dreamer's a real wrestler's wrestler too. Yeah, you know he's like—he's yeah. old school, and he—he'll wrestle in a gym or he'll wrestle in an arena. He'll be the same guy. Yeah. You know, I think he's—he's yeah. he's he's the kind of wrestler that all wrestlers respect. And I would agree with that. And he also, um, you know, I teach out here. An assignment: one of my students had to do a Q and A with someone. And uh, he was awesome. He was great. He's just always, he's just a nice guy, really decent guy. Did you complete this documentary, and did you get this master's degree with the intention of maybe teaching more? Was that um, the motivation yeah. for it, or that? Yeah, um, I uh, you know it sucks. It's a sucky system, uh, academia, where you could be a guy like me, and I'm not saying I'm like the world's greatest anything, but I'm saying you know has written books and has had some success. Is at a minimum. If you don't have a master's or a PhD, you know, a bachelor's degree, then I would say m- most of my best professors in Delaware in journalism were with a ton of experience for adjunct professors. In journalism, one of the things that's bad, uh, you see it a lot of newspapers now, is people s- sit still and you don't, you know, you don't look to the future. And I, I see books as certainly an uncertainty to a certain degree. What's going to happen with the book business, you know, ebooks and how much is going to be paid out. And I just think, I love teaching, and I love the idea of maybe teaching full time and doing books simultaneously. So, yeah, I, I love I love ebooks, but why do they charge so much for them? <laughs> well, there so many of them are well, first, money. I mean, they got to make money, you know. Um, the business model for that, I'd love to look through it because it just seems like it would be really relatively cheap to produce. Yeah, and yeah. it's as much as hardcover books the first week or whatever. True. I didn't know that. I didn't even know that. You know, for anything you'd want to buy, I mean, there's obviously you could. There's free ones and there's ones you can get for five dollars. They've been out fifteen years, but yeah. You know, when your Brett Favre book comes out, it's going to be fifteen, sixteen bucks, thirteen, fifteen, something like that. Well, I mean, you know, and Amazon's going to have that book that week for at least that, yeah, if not less. But I can't be mad about that because uh, I got you know like. Publishing companies have to exist. I mean, it does cost money to, and this is what I do for my career, and I have to get paid for it. And publishing companies have to make money off of it. And if you, if 
people want books, we can't just give the crap away. You know, so I guess that's why. <laughs> to be honest, it just gotta, feels like gotta, the same price or a fair price should be like what you paid for a CD. You know, ten bucks for the book, ten bucks for a CD. I don't know. Yeah, you can make the argument. I just I think publishing companies are struggling to figure it all out, just like newspapers are struggling to figure out how to make money online. Um, I think publishing companies are figuring out because you know it used to be your, you had hardcover and you had paperbacks and you had you knew you could charge X amount and you knew you could charge X amount. So now. This year, last year was the first year that more ebooks were sold in America than hard, than hardcover and paperbacks. And I think publishing companies are struggling to figure out well, how are we, how are we making money. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if someone like you, if you look at like something like what Louis C.K. has done, you know, with mm-hmm. whether it's his shows or with his yep. his new uh, his new project, Horace and Pete, which I don't know if you watched it, but it's amazing. Yeah, I saw the first episode. So good. I just yeah. Decided. It's a tough, yeah. it's a tough grind to get through it because there's not much happiness there. But yeah. I mean, the art is unbelievable. I mean, the acting yeah. and the writing and directing, even. I mean, just woo. But yeah, do agree. you look at what he does and like think, well, maybe that's my future? Or maybe I know that like the word self-publishing in books is kind of like a a bad term to some degree, or like maybe like a an admission that maybe people don't want this or something. But do you ever think that maybe? There's just no need. There, there'll just be a point where there's just no need for that middleman. Like, oh, I can create a PDF file and I can get the dis- the distribution for the amount of books I'd have to distribute manually. Yeah, well, I think um, the problem with that, the problem for publishing companies is this: like, if if print books go the way of CDs, why would anyone need a publishing company, right? Like, why would you? Why wouldn't you just self-publish? And you know, like. You know, you can hire your own publicist or you can do your own. And now with social media, really, like I said in that documentary, that you really are your own publicist. So I can be my own publicist. And let's say ebooks end up being 90% of the market instead of 55% of the market. Why would anybody need HarperCollins or Penguin or whoever, Howard Mifflin, when I don't even know what their roles would be anymore? So it's a really interesting thing. I have thought about it. I, I love the publishing companies I've worked with, and I still love holding a book in my hands. And I think a lot of people still do. I don't think books have gone the way of newspapers, obviously. Uh, hopefully they won't, but I, they haven't yet. Um, but if it ends up that way, with the vast majority of books are being read on, a, on a, some sort of tablet uh, or phone, I don't really see how publishing companies survive, to be honest. I don't, even, I don't see it. Well, yeah, and I think like more and more, the way you have to sell books, like I was watching in your documentary... You had Molly Knight, and um, she was talking about you know, how much she used social media to promote her book and how much she did on her own and the plates that she sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sold, but, you know, if people prove they bought the book. And I was just thinking, like, you know, if she had – if she signed 5,000 of those things, she may as well have just printed 5,000 books and <laughs> sold the books with the things and, you know, like – and then yeah. – you know, I don't know. I don't know that she needed the publishing company. I'm sure it helped with distribution on a wide scale, and I'm sure she sold more than she would have, but maybe it wouldn't have been a New York Times bestseller. So I, I, st- I still get why you need it. I just wonder, yep. like, in terms of dollars and cents, if she could have made more on her own. Because she, yeah, she certainly seemed to have the hustle to do it, you know, someone like yeah. her. And it seemed like to but some, some degree she did but it here's anyway. The thing. But here's the thing. Molly Knight, like... Uh... Before that, she was pretty anonymous. I, she's a great writer. She's an awesome person, and like that book is I, awesome. I think it's, 
It's great. It's, it's great. great. It's a great, great book. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. But did you have her on? Yeah, she was great. Yeah, she's the best. So, um, but like, I feel like, I think like that first book deal, so she got a book deal and she got money and she was able, therefore she had money where she could say, all right, I'm on this book full time. So a publishing company gave her money. Um, she beat ESPN or take, uh, take time off from ESPN. She had financial security to do it. Okay. So now, thanks to sort of having, I forgot who published it, but thanks for having that sort of deal, her, maybe her next book, she can self-publish. Maybe her next, she has enough of a name now, she has a following, right. reputation, she can do it. But I think she did, I think having a deal for the book helped her in a lot of ways. Because they gave, they gave her money to write a book, so she can right. she have that security. And there is something about, there is, I will say factually, there is something about you sign a deal, okay, well I'm going to have X amount of money for the next two years, well, I can kick back and write this book. And you're not just thinking, oh, I hope this sells when I put it out as an ebook. I have money. I have this advance from a publishing company. So that's a pretty important thing, actually. And I got to think she's very desirable now, too, because she's proven herself as a writer. She's proven that she's more of a name now. She's pr- She's got to be really desirable to a publisher because they see how much she hustles. You know, like... Maybe. You know, but I, I don't know. Do you think that matters to them? Do, like... I think, yeah, I do think it matters, but I think, um, man, it's just like, I feel like this business is very much, um, what have you done lately for me? And yeah, she can, she clearly can write a good book. She's talented. You know, she knows how to hustle. That's all great. Very but smart. like, I don't, I don't know if, probably, I don't know if that's enough. Like, I feel like people get forgotten about it very quickly mm-hmm. and you have to, I'm always like hustling for the next book. I'm always like, what's the next book going to be? What's the next book going to be? And, and I feel like you always have to prove yourself in, in publishing. Like people still, people say to me, and it's not of any cockiness. I'm not saying I deserve any, like people be like, you still have to write a proposal. Like you don't have to write a proposal anymore, right? You just come up with ideas or they come to you. And I'm like, man, I'm always handing in 30 page proposals. And like, no matter how big my last book, so I'm always having to like, give a very hard set for the next book. Yeah, it's interesting too because like we've had this conversation a lot of times. And I know the last time you're on, you were getting ready to finish a book, but you still we couldn't talk about it because you still hadn't put out that it was a Brett Favre book. I had figured it out. Right. I figured out your last two books really quickly. Probably as damn quick, you, quick as anyone. Uh, but um, this time, you know, even you've said real early what you're doing next, and mm-hmm. I think part of the reason you did that, I'm guessing, and I'll, I'll let you tell us why for sure. But part of the reason is because I think you felt like you would need it to be out there to help you find people and find things. Maybe, maybe it was a little. Like, like USFL. Yeah, the USFL book because you've been very uh-huh. honest about what you're doing next post fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Um, no, they're being correct. Okay, so why. tell me why and like how you think it will be an advantage or disadvantage this time. Okay, so I feel like um, USFL was the first book I'm writing. It doesn't come with a certain guarantee. And what I mean is like, uh, like every book I've written about every, every subject I've taken so far for books, all seven have been big names or big teams, like every one of them, you know, like my worst selling book was Roger Clemens. And even that, like, yeah, it didn't sell that great, but it still sold pretty well. You know, like it's still like, it still sold well. And like, he was a big name. So Clemens, the name himself was going to sell some books. Uh, the USFL is my first, I can't say it's a risk, 
but it's like, you know what to do it. It's a real passion project. Um, so I feel like any momentum I can build on it and any have people feel like they're involved and invested in it and that if I keep in the path, I mean, you know, because, you know, it's a much tougher sell. You're talking about a 1980s football league that a lot of sports fans probably didn't even know existed. A lot of sports fans now weren't alive for. A lot of sports fans back then didn't give it, care that much. But I just, I kind of feel like, all right, you know what? I didn't get that much money for it. It's a big risk. Um, I'm going to have to hustle my ass off, so why not start now? Have you had this really, I'm sure in your mind, very dirty thought? Have you thought, Man, it'll be my worst nightmare in November if, how about I say this, if Hillary Clinton is not the president. But, <laughs> yeah. but if her opponent is, it will probably be good for my book because, uh, because yeah. one of the central villains in the book will be one of the central villains to half of the country, if not more. Have you had that thought? Not because it's an interesting thing. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty liberal guy. Oh yeah, uh, pretty. I, I yeah, yeah. Is that without understatement? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, you're you're very. Oh, that was an understatement. Yeah, I'm very, very liberal. Very, very liberal. Yes, but I'm not a huge Bernie fan. It's kind of funny. So it's not like people are like, man, you you love Hillary. I'm like, I don't love Hillary at all. Like, I actually wish. I just had this conversation with my, with my wife today. I feel like the Democratic Party right now had a Cory Booker running or even oddly a, um, what the hell's the name? Oh, my God. Uh, O'Malley. Martin O'Malley. Like someone sort of young and fresh and like, you know, without all this freaking crap in their, in their back pocket, I feel like this election coming up would be almost a steamroll. You know, like I think Cory Booker, this is an example would like would absolutely you would walk in and you'd be like he's gonna kill Trump. Trump is gonna get absolutely destroyed by by, by a guy like this. Young, optimistic, forward thinking, blah 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 blah. Like man, Hillary has so much baggage and I do get why people hate her. Right. Like, she- I totally I don't know. So I have already thought to answer your question in not really a very good way. I um I don't think Trump winning or losing really helps my book because I think there's gonna be this overkill with Trump. I can't do the book around him because even if he's a great president, um, people will be kind of tired of him. A lot of Trump all the time. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Someone told an unbelievable story on a podcast about the guy who did the USFL documentary for 30 for 30. Oh, Mike. Yeah. I forget where I was hearing him, but he told the story of like interviewing Trump for that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, (laughs) the note that Trump sent him, like, after the film came out or something. Yeah, you're a loser and you also be a loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great I mean, story. I wish I knew a podcast that was on because he tells the story brilliantly. Wait, um, let me ask you a question. You're a person. Yeah, well, I'm like a classic New York Republican, right? I'm like pretty socially moderate, maybe even socially right. liberal. You know, I'm fiscally conservative. fiscally conservative and like, you know, I kind of, I lean right. I'm, you know, I'm certainly, I'm probably not a conservative. I'm more like a Republican than a conservative. You know, like I feel like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm a very much a Reagan Republican, you know, whether there were 17 guys initially trying out 
If that's right, that's not the right word. Uh, seventeen <laughs> guys, right? Try, seventeen guys running. I mean, Donald Trump would have been choice seventeen, if I'm being honest. Yeah, you know, and maybe sixteen. I had a Cruz, maybe, but I wonder if maybe I put Cruz lower now because I know more about him. Maybe that long ago, I would have still put Cruz ahead. Uh, but yeah. I think that, and this is from Barack Obama, said on the Mark Maron podcast. I think the perfect thing about presidents, and the thing that I'm going to try to sell myself. When I make my annual, or whatever the word for every four years, meaningless vote uh, is, since my state is a given every time anyway. But um, Barack Obama said, in eight years, and that was eight years, he is proud of the fact that he was able to move the lever just a little, little bit. That it took everything in his power, everything he had, everything he believed, everything he could say, every piece of charisma, to just move it a little bit in eight years. Right. And I think that the Supreme Court is more important this time than the president. And I need, I can't risk Hillary or Bernie's people. I have to stick with this awful choice because if it's three people, that get and that's a possibility in the four years. I I just got to roll with that. But would you rather have a Scalia type on the Supreme Court than a? Uh, I love a I case? love Scalia. I mean, he's an Italian American. So you are kind of. So you are kind of. I didn't believe I mean, in. I didn't believe in everything Scalia did. I wasn't. Yeah, you know, like his interpretive. But I love Scalia. You know, like I love an Italian American. I'm an Italian American on the Supreme Court. You know, I also like the fact that he was often respected by people who were opposite politically of him. You know, people who debated with him or learned under him. You know, many liberal judges after he died came out and said, I never agreed with anything he wrote, but I learned the most from him. You know, yeah. so, you know um, now I don't know that we would get a Scalia type from Trump, though, because I don't even believe that Trump is all that conservative in himself. Now, it's, it's yet, it's yet to be seen... Who will be making his choices? Like, would it truly be Donald Trump? Like, calling a guy he doesn't think is a loser? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. You know, I don't know how a reality star in the in the Oval Office works. Um, do you think he will win the election? Oh, I do not. I wouldn't bet money on it. It's going to be tough. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I it's I think a lot of it is going to depend on on. Let's just assume for this discussion, it's Hillary. I think a lot yeah. of it's going to depend on how she deals with him. And how and how her support as well deals with him in social media and, and in the mainstream media, um, because it seems like on the Republican side, when you went at him, uh, when he when he got to the point where he's giving you a nickname, and I guess he already has one for her anyway. But when you would get yep. to that point, when he gets you in that in that zone, that's when he would crush you. And it seems like it seems like the more that people want to tell other people about how bad he'll be, the more entrenched his supporters are, the more impassioned his supporters are, and the more likely he might be able to drum up the support in the rural uh, areas of the country, rural areas of states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, that maybe he could yeah. in that. You know, I think I think it's Hillary's game to lose if she's the nominee. And, but I do, but I do see a way she could lose it. You know, I guess. Yeah, and, it's very interesting. And if one thing I've learned the last, I guess, eight years now or more, 
people don't want Hillary that much. I mean, I, I agree. I don't disagree. With you. She lost. To, like, um, she lost to Obama, right? She, when it yeah, she seemed did. like it was going to struggling ease, with Sanders, and she's struggling mightily with. And I'm saying this with respect. With you know a seventy whatever year old Jewish man -year -old socialist. who's a socialist, <laughs> and it's like that has got to just show you that people don't want her. And I think she'll have her vote votes that are for Hillary, but I do think a, a way for her to win will be more you know votes against Trump too. And and she's got to make sure that it doesn't flip, that it's not people going to vote for Trump to, to not vote for her. Like the thing I, I don't understand, I don't understand why people. So I don't love Hillary Clinton. In fact, I don't even, I don't even find her like, I certainly don't find her very light. I mean, I just, I don't, I'm not a lover of her. I feel like she's very political, obviously calculated, blah, blah, blah. But like, who isn't? I feel like you're, I didn't think she's a great man and a politician with the same characteristics. She would be thought of slightly differently. You know, I think people, people love throwing the bit, you know, the bitch word around and she's overly aggressive and she's, ambitious look how ambitious she is i feel like you know john mccain was ambitious mitt romney was ambitious bill clinton was certainly ambitious barack obama's ambitious i think there's a weird double standard that um for some reason i think she uh i just think i do think she has a lot of characteristics of a lot of male politicians and a lot of male politicians with those same characteristics are thought of as strong and crafty and feisty and she's thought of as wicked and bitchy and whatever. And I'm not saying she isn't wicky and bitched, uh, <laughs> bitchy and wicked, but I do think she, there's a double standard a little bit with her. No, and that's probably true. I don't think I would argue that. I don't think, you yeah. know, I don't think I'd argue that. I think like, you know, look, we're a country of double standards, really. You know, and you can, so. you can find them all over the place, you know. And um, she is certainly not exempt from them. You know, I right. just... I feel like the rejection of her, because I feel like there kind of has been a rejection of her to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, Definitely. I feel like that. I'm sure that's a factor. Um, but I, I, it's hard to judge how much of a factor. You know, it's hard to say. And I, I would probably guess that region to region it would differ. You know, I'm sure there's yeah. cer certain areas where that would be more intense. I, I think that if Trump wants to win this, you know, I think Nikki Haley might be the key to it. And hopefully if she'll run with him. And hopefully she he can convince her that being the VP for him would still be better than not being the VP at all. Um, I think it'd be a huge mistake for her for Nikki Haley. You do. I don't think it's worth it. I do. I think she's a. I think she could easily be. I think most Republicans. It's going to take a lot for Trump to win this election. Like that's undeniable. Now he could win it, but it's going to take a lot of a of electoral map shifting. For him to win, you know, Hillary Clinton is just at a at a huge advantage if you look at the map. So there's going to be a big opening. There's a big gaping hole in the Republican Party right now, and that's one thing we see. None of these, none of those guys on the stage are contenders four years from now. And to me, as soon as this election ends, Nikki Haley is the number one contender four years from now. And it's not worth it to me. If I'm her, in my head, I'm hoping Trump loses. I'm hoping Hillary has a mediocre four years. And I'm going to run against her in four years, uh, and she will be a very, very hard candidate to beat. I think Hillary Clinton's going to have a really hard time getting a second term. I agree. Unless you know, she's I mean, she's going to have to do yeah, an I amazing job. I agree. Too. I, I think that. I agree. You know, but I think you know, for Democrats and liberals, the the win, regardless, is you know, hey, let's let's get her, let's get her in, 
and it's obviously going to be better for us no matter what, and let's see how many judges she can appoint. You know, yeah, let's, let's get a little luck here. I also think if you're you know, me, I'm sure that would be the, the, the thing I keep the, the thing I keep thinking to myself is this. I don't love her. I'm not an enormous fan, but most of her, most of the things she's going to go after are things I agree with, and I'm sure most of the judges she would appoint I'd be comfortable with. Oh, so, you love the judges. End of the day, I would take yeah. her. Yeah, yeah and so. you know, and I always say, which I totally agree with you about the Supreme Court right now. Like, I think the Republicans are making a huge mistake uh, not talking to the appointee, um, and yeah. probably a huge mistake not ratifying him um, because I. I think Barack Obama has been relatively fair. Um, I think he's done a pretty good job. Still not as good as I hoped. I think he sold me on something he just couldn't achieve. You know, like the idea of change and it being different. It still felt very, very similar to me. I didn't, I didn't catch much of a difference. You know, I don't really know that there was much change in the way I view politicians or view presidents. It felt very similar to me. Uh, I'm not the kind of person who has any disrespect towards any president. Uh, I was very hurt during Bush's term at all the disrespect towards the office. And I've been just as hurt this time. Um, right. oh, where's I going with this? But, um, I think he's been fair. And, um, I think that Republicans should have been more fair with him because when he leaves and if Hillary walks in behind them, um, Oh man, that's going to be a new reality for them. I think. I also hated the precedent. I hate the precedent this sets, and I'm not, I don't even mean party-wise. I mean, I hate that, let's say Trump wins, and now he's going to nominate Supreme Court justices. They're definitely You think the Democrats that. are just going to be like, oh, okay, no. we're going we're gonna to offer a hearing. They're going to yeah. be like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. You put right. us through this. We're and not going to go right. through this either. And, and they'll I, be right to. I yeah. hate that. Yeah. Man, I hate that so much from both ways. I just hate it. So I think they made, I don't think they made it politically. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they didn't. But I just think, and then for the good of the country, it was really not cool. And I think it highlighted what we all hate about, about politics, what we all hate about exactly. the things 100%. that our elected rep- representatives do. You know, and like yep. we talked about Pearl Jam earlier, and they were forced to make a political stand um, that, look at I am a Pearl Jam apologist, uh, and I will support them forever. And in 2004, mm-hmm. I still followed them around the country on their vo- Vote for Change tour. Uh, despite the fact that I wasn't going to be voting for change. Uh, but I, I disagreed with not their decision to sit out in North Carolina and not play, but I certainly disagreed with their decision to wait till 48 hours before to do it. Um, oh, and, right. I, and I do think that there was an opportunity for them to not just follow the leader, you know, the boss who's the leader. And I know they look up to him as the leader. And as soon as Bruce Springsteen canceled, he was going to uh, – they were going to as well. I told everyone um, in the community, the Pearl Jam community, if you have tickets to that, make new plans. Uh, but right. my point right. was, but my point was that uh, that's just another example of everything we hate about politics. Why do we need this law? I mean, listen, I spend more time in public bathrooms than anyone. Okay, I'm, I, I'm there a lot. I'm I have lot. several times in the last six months had to drive off the road to the nearest bathroom. Just completely disregarding what that bathroom might be like and having no choice but just to go in it and use it. And I've been in disgusting bathrooms on rest stops. I've just been in them all. And never one time has who else was in it been a worry of mine. Because it's a wedge issue. It just never happened. It's a total wedge issue. You know, and this is the kind of thing that 
makes me hate politics and politicians. And this time, the politicians are, I guess, on my side, but not really because I'm not a religious Republican, which is what these mm-hmm. guys are. So, I mean, they're on my side, but, I mean, they don't represent me necessarily. And it's just yeah. unfair, too, to the people of North Carolina because this is not something they voted on. It wasn't like a you know, a referendum in the election. It was like a secret session or an emergency session. They forced it in. You know, and the people of North Carolina are really the ones who suffered, you know, if they're losing jobs or not being able to go to concerts or whatever. And I don't know, man. I don't know. It's tough. It's a tough. It's no fun. It's no fun. Politics It's ironic. Fun. Don't you find it ironic how the people who profess to be the most moral often commit the most immoral acts? I mean, to me, this was a classic example of it just strikes me as really immoral, the way you're treating. And like someone who's transgender and is trying to come to grips with who they are. You know, like, they don't deserve this crap. They just don't deserve this crap. It's so mean. It's just mean for no good reason. That law does nothing except alienate people and make them feel like crap about themselves. And it's for no good reason. It doesn't do anything. I'm still, except, I'm yeah. still learning what, like, transgender is and still trying to get comfortable with it. Because I just, I don't know anyone that is. or right. it, They don't live near me yet. Or if they do, they're not. I just haven't been. Con- I don't understand yet, but you need to read Quas number Quas number uh, two fifty two. I did, and I, I've, oh, you yeah, know, there I, you go. But but uh, yeah, I would have never known if they were in the bathroom with me or not. If any, well, like, that's a funny thing. You know, like it says, the law doesn't protect anyone. What was the, What was ever the need if, for this? If you're going to sneak into a bathroom, if some guy's going to sneak in a bathroom and molest little girls, this law doesn't stop him from doing that. I mean, it's ridiculous. It doesn't, doesn't change the damn thing. It's the dumbest thing ever. Someone's going to molest someone, and there's no, there's no rates of, like, there's, a, there's no, like, correlation between chan- transgender people and a higher percentage of, I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing to it. It's a wedge issue thing to get arts conservative voters, religious nutties, which I know you're not at all, to go to the polls and, you know, support morons like Ted Cruz. And it's dumb. And you know what? I'll tell you a story. In 2006, Sabres were making a playoff run. They're playing the Rangers in the second round of the Eastern Conference uh, playoffs. Oh. I was watching a game at Buffalo Wild Wings. I'm sure I had some Buffalo Wild Wings, even though I'm not a fan of that. It's not really for Buffalo people. It's for tourists or whatever. Yeah, uh, true. B- but um, the urge hit me, and it hit me quick and hard. And I got up from my seat, and I turned around with a mission to go to the bathroom. And I had my head down. And I went to the bathroom, and I went right to the stall, and I shut the stall, and I sat down. I did my business, and within 30 seconds, I heard some chicks talking. And I said, oh, Oh, shit, you went in the women's room. And I was thinking about this the other day because I was like, well, if I was in North Carolina, would I be, like, arrested then? Like, would I have been breaking the law? You know, I just strategically waited till I was pretty sure it was empty, and then I hightailed out and went across the hall. You know, I don't think anyone noticed, but, like, I don't know. I'm going to make a citizen's arrest. All right, last thing. We'll end on this. Um, yeah, go ahead. One last topic. Uh, and I want to talk, and I talked a little bit with Neil Best about this last week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about with you today. And that's just like the whole Kurt Schilling thing. like um, Because I've been conflicted about this as well. Because one, I think Kurt Schilling's probably a jerk. And I think yep. he's aggravation. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure employing him is aggravation that you don't mm-hmm. need if you're ESPN. Um, and I'm uncomfortable a lot with the things he says because some of the things he says sometimes, like, even if you believe that, I don't really think you need to put it, like, on social media. 
Like I just mm-hmm. I'm not really like I don't express myself that way much. Mm-hmm. But it does annoy me that like that we're that we're firing people for these things. And I know and it it's the debate of like well you have free speech but that doesn't free you from consequences from the speech. But I feel like we are limiting free speech in general if every time someone says something we don't like we're going to bitch and moan and cry and complain to their employer uh, for their heads. And that just makes me real uncomfortable. And I don't know if Kurt Schilling is the best, like, person to wear this, like, (laughs) to, like, march into the flame for me in this issue because he does seem like a pain in the ass. And if I was ESPN, I'd be done with that pain in the ass too. Uh, But it does bother me to some degree. What do you think? I don't disagree with you. Well, I am... I was asked about this, or maybe I wrote something about it. I um, when I wrote that John Rocker story back in '99, um, the Major League Baseball suspended him, uh, and he got demoted, and blah blah blah. And I remember at the time I was really, and I still feel this way. I thought it was really uh, wrongheaded because um, if you're going to want your employees, you know, Major League Baseball wants their employees to their players to speak and to be available for the media. You uh, you can't expect everyone to share the same beliefs you do, right? Not everyone is going to be open-minded. Not everyone's going to be liberal. Not everyone's going to have access to gays, to transgender, whatever. It just you know, it's a it's a big world, and it's a it's a big pool of people from different backgrounds. And so I didn't I didn't do Rocker any favors by printing his thoughts, but I never thought he should have been suspended. You know, I never did. And surprisingly, most people I know, especially liberals, disagree with me on this. But I don't think Schilling should have been fired either. Again, like ESPN puts these guys out there. Uh, they want them to tweet. They want them to engage. They want them to be public figures. Well, not every public figure is going to agree with you. And not every public figure is going to like certain laws. And I think Kurt Schilling is a moron. I've always thought he's one of those guys who, because he's, you know, in baseball, he was always considered one of the guys to go to. He was a go-to quote. That doesn't mean you're intelligent. It just means you're a good quote. I think sometimes guys who are go-to quotes um, start to think they're smarter than they really are. And I don't think he's a very smart guy. I don't think he's a very deep guy. Um, I think he, he thinks he is. So he would issue these sort of tweets and thoughts, and people get pissed off. Um, so I don't like him. I mean, I don't like his beliefs. I have nothing against him personally. I don't really like his beliefs. But I didn't like that ESPN fired him. If you're going to put people out there and they're going to be public figures, I got bad news for you. Not everyone's going to support the transgender laws of North Carolina. This is what it is. Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, Howard Stern made an interesting point. He said that, you know, when I was a shock jock, quote unquote, and I was in the height of that that part of my career, it was the right that would always fight against me. And I would lose sponsors and I would lose jobs. And then they took it too far and they kind of lost their power in that regard. And I wonder, because now the shift is to the other side. Where it's yep. the, the liberals who are driving the don't sponsor them, fire them, don't watch yeah, them. And I wonder if it's gonna, there's going to be a tipping point again and it's going to swing back the other way. I think it's I, – I actually agree with everything you just said I, I, or Howard Stern said. I do think now it's more liberals, who are, which I'm one of, who uh, are always calling out people in the media for you know not supporting this or for being against gay, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I really think these corporations, and I've always felt this way, like, 
you know, back when I was, I'm trying to think, I've had instances in my career where I needed my editors to have my back or I needed my employers to have my back. And they usually did, you know, and I think ESPN easily could have issued a statement saying, we don't agree with Kurt Schilling on this one. We as a company don't agree with Kurt Schilling on this one. However, we respect his right to have his own opinions. Um, and that has nothing to do with his ability to be a baseball commentator. Uh, I think that's what they should have done, but they didn't. Uh, I think I, I, with social media and whatever they're having a voice, these corporations get very uh, itchy very quickly. Right, and just they, like they, they did, like Howard said, in the 90s when it was the right that yeah. was putting the pressure on. Yeah, I don't like it either way. It, it annoys me. So I'm with you. I agree with you 100%. It'll be interesting to see if we have a, a switch. All right. Yes, who knows? Jeff Perlman has said it all. You can find Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff yep. Perlman, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to his website, jeffperlman.com. You can find the quads there. It's weekly. It's exciting. More importantly, go watch, go watch Book Horror. Yes, Book Horror. We talked about it in the interview, sort of. <laughs> yeah. We alluded to it. Please He's do. a documentarian now. You can find Book Horror on jeffperlman.com, I'm guessing. Is yeah, or it? just on YouTube. Or on YouTube. Yeah, you can get that. Mm-hmm. Um, the books are great. I loved all of them. Even the Roger Clemens one, he begged me not to read. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for reading it. Uh, the uh, Brett Favre book will be here in November. I'm sure Jeff will be back to talk about that. Um, Showtime is the last book. Sweetness is the best book. Uh, I'm going to get Seth Davis on your show. <laughs> Seth Davis is going to be on the show. Jeff, I'm going to be yeah. a dad of a daughter in a month. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to survive that? Oh. Yeah, you'll be good. You you'll sure? be good. Have her again. Have her listen to a lot of hip hop. Yeah, I'm not. That's 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 almost as helpful as the get your sleep now advice that everyone gives. I mean, it's just. It's Let me tell you what. If you want good advice on how to be a good parent, mm-hmm. you need to start following my wife on Twitter at the family. I, coach. I do follow. I'm not her. kidding. Yeah, I do follow. Oh, her. you do follow. Her. Yeah. Well, I need all the help I'm I can rubbing get. Her foot. I'm rubbing her foot right now as we speak. I find it hard to believe that anyone could be an expert in parenting. Um, yeah, she's a the concept star. of that is foreign to me, uh, but your wife has definitely uh, made me a believer, sort of. Because I'll read the yes, questions amazing. she puts out, and I'll be like, yeah, that makes sense. So, you read what you write. Thank you. Yeah, because <laughs> I need to learn. I don't know anything. I knew – look, at I've, I've been a big brother, a big, an older cousin. I've been a lot of things, yep. to boys and girls even. Um, but yep. I, I, don't, I, I understand game. I know nothing. So I'm just I'm, – I'm trying to be a sponge. But unfortunately, people only want to tell me. Get sleep. You're not going to sleep. Like, okay, yeah, we get it. The kid's going to be up late yeah. or whatever. You know, all right. Yeah, yeah great. That's no yeah. help. That, that does not help. You can't save sleep. Yeah. If I sleep 21 hours today, it's not going to help me. And, and that is correct. So, but all right. Uh, do you have any questions for me before we go? I do not, but thank you for having me this Th- evening. Thank you for coming on. And um, have, a bless- have a blessed evening. Jeff Passon is on as well. You should read his book, The Arm, if you haven't already. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Great writer. Great writer. All right. Thanks, man. All right, I want to thank uh, Jeff Perlman for being on the show today. I also want to thank Jeff Passon for being on. Don't forget you can hear this show and all our shows on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Uh, last week's podcast had the Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski, and Neil Best from Newsday. Did you hear the Newsday or the Wyshynski uh, interview, Don? I think I listened to both, actually. Yeah, I like them. Yeah. Always like Greg, and Neil Best, is uh, he's a nice little fella mm-hmm. out there in Long Island, New York. 
Uh, you can also get our podcast on iTunes and uh, Stitcher and all those places. Uh, don't forget about our blogs. Uh, Don has a recent <laughs> post, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. We're going to try to use them more. You can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter. Don is at Don Lake Sports, And I'm at sports underscore casters. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, I'm going to apologize kind of. I should have done it at the beginning, but I'll apologize at the end. If anything is louder than normal, it's because I can't hear out of my left ear because my, you hear how ridiculous my earwax is. is bullshit. Uh, a long time ago, I thought I had swimmer's ear or something. In the summer, I just I couldn't get like this feeling out of my ear, like my hearing was fuzzy. And I went to the doctor, and the doctor, this nice little Asian lady, was just like, oh, you got so much earwax in your ear. So, uh, I what did a, she do to get it out? They take like, w- like, uh, like a water syringe thing and they shoot water in there. And then they use this thing that I can only describe as like a tiny little spoon and they like scrape it out. Like they get in there and they, they dig it out. Now is this equipment you could purchase for your home? Uh, I did get some like drops for my ear, but I'm not sure about the spoon thing. You probably don't want you digging in your own ears. Maybe, maybe I can. Now, are you sure that you couldn't just Q-tip less? Yeah, because that's the thing. I went to Q-tip to cut this to off. Not at all. Because when I went there last time, and my ear was so impacted with wax, like she pulled out like a chunk, like the size of like a pea at one point. It was really bad. And they tell you, like, they might even say on the packaging, like, don't put Q-tips in your ears, type thing. So I stopped using Q-tips. I Figured she shoots water in my I've ear. I've used them for 35 years <laughs> of success. I have crazy waxy ears. Uh, but, yeah, they shot water into is, my ear to get it out. So I figured, okay, when I'm taking a shower, I'll turn my head, put it under the faucet, and clean it out that way. And it works, but all of a sudden, the last few days, I'd wake up, and it seems it's worse not in the working. morning. No, it's not. It's I, You have to do something because I'm like, do you do the hot – candle thing or whatever no i've heard i've heard that's bad too but you think everything's bad but you have to do something (laughs) well you know what i think i think what happens is uh some people just end up getting cleanings like at a doctor and i was trying to do that no i have to schedule those like a haircut i i do not want to do that uh this has been many years in between so i guess i've had a good run so if i have to do it once every few years or maybe i'll just stick do the drops before it gets to this point like there's supposed to be drops that like kind of loosen stuff up in there but yeah, you anyway, something. I can't hear out of my left ear that well. Uh, when we started recording the podcast, I'm like, this seems really quiet. My head. You know what I quiet. heard? If you can get it in there, can sometimes loosen that up. I don't come. <laughs> I thought that might be going that way. Yeah, so maybe if I jizz in your ear, maybe. we could loosen it up that way. That's an option. All right, one last thing for me this week: uh, Game of Thrones has started again, and I watched this show, Don. Mm-hmm. I have no fucking idea what's going on in this show. You know what's weirder? That I, I think anyone that's like a regular listener, like any of the handful of people out there that are regular listeners, would put all their money on me for the Game of Thrones guy and not you. You're definitely into nerdier stuff, but I'm more into quality television. <laughs> that might be right. You know, and this is – it is great television drama. Here's the thing. The first season is great at drawing you in because it's very much a straight-up medieval story about kings – Okay. And killing, and it's not until later that, like later in season one, when the Khaleesi walks through fire and doesn't die, and somehow gives birth to dragons that breathe fire and kill people, mm. and doesn't someone give birth to like 
a dust cloud or something or smoke or something. There is so many goddamn people yeah. from so many freaking places. I have no idea what's going on. And that doesn't even get to the fact that I don't know what anyone's saying. <laughs> and Bill Simmons is now at HBO, right? Okay. And Ringer is coming up and he's got this staff and they created a show this year called After the Thrones. Okay. And Andy Greenwald and some other guy, Chris Ryan, I think his name is, have a show that comes on HBO Go that I guess explains to idiots like me what the hell is going on. I wonder who started that phenomenon. I know there's the Talking Dead, but that they did that with Breaking Bad too. And, and by the way, there is – if you go shows. to the television podcast section on iTunes, the top like 10 podcasts are Game of Thrones podcasts doing the same thing. Yeah, they used to do. So Walking let's Dead. use last yeah, week's episode for example, mm-hmm. and it is. I will be giving a spoiler alert. So if you are concerned about that, let's turn it off. Jon Snow is a character who was killed at the end of last season in the finale. Okay. This season, in the second episode, he was brought back from the dead by a witch. Okay. So, I just kind of like, all right, well. They decide to bring him back. Whatever. Then I'm watching this show, and the explanation for it is just outrageous. The guy's like, literally, he goes, you probably remember in season three, when these guys who had like a three-episode arc in the 75 episodes of the show strolled through, and the one guy had a friend who kept dying, but he kept bringing him back, and he would say this prayer that's in a different language that you probably don't know because you only speak English and also the language isn't real anyway. Right. So they expect us to remember a prayer from season three from some guys who don't really matter that was given in a language that one, I don't speak and two, isn't real. And these guys are like, well, of course you remember this, right? And, and I'm just thinking, no. That's, that's literal. Like, they're saying they're saying that's like tongue-in-cheek. They're they're, saying no, like, they're saying like, of course this could happen because there's precedent in the show and this is the precedent. Because Breaking Bad, uh, what's his name? Vince Gilligan likes to do little things like Easter eggy things <laughs> that like maybe on a second viewing of the series, you're like, oh, man, he totally foreshadowed that. Or this character used kind of the same line that he uses later on in the series. But none of that's integral to... The story, it's just kind of things. Yeah, or like this year, it. for example, with the the fans figured out that the names of the season spelled spelled Frings back, Frings back, like that, yeah. yeah. But look at, I have no idea what's going on in this show. There's obviously a general shell of the story I can follow, but I am not getting out of it. Apparently, what the nerdiest of nerdy Thrones fans. Are getting and I are, guess are you I decided this week that I'm okay with it. Are you, are you pot committed to the show? Yeah, I mean, it's the sixth or seventh season. I think they said there's going to be eight or nine total. Um, are they ahead of the books? They're now point? finally ahead, ahead of the, of the books, books. So I guess there's no longer going to be this snob of people who are telling me they know more than me because they read the books that I'm obviously never going to read. Uh, and you know. I guess I'll watch it out. I mean, but like I said, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't know what anyone's saying. I like the little midget guy. He went and talked to the dragons this week. That was cool. You know, there's usually some good nudity, (laughs) maybe a rape every once in a while. Uh, The one guy fed his baby brother to wolves this week. So it's not lacking for There's great killings and gore and misery. There's very, very little happiness in the show. There's rarely a happy ending. You know, the Starks are basically all dead or blind or 
just coming back from the dead at this point. You know, so. Yeah, I don't know what it is about this. I think I've talked about this before. My nerd whatever doesn't cross over to. Josh, you're nodding over there. Do you watch Game of Thrones? He doesn't watch it. No. But you know about it to some degree? I saw the first season. The first season was kind of good, right? Yeah. It wasn't that out there. Yeah, it just went off the deep end. I mean, they literally had the Khaleesi walk through fire and then give birth to two dragons. Hmm. But they birthed them in egg, out of eggs. They didn't like come out of a vagina like my daughter will. <laughs> right. You know, it was like a little bit of a different birthing process. but And Howard Stern is constantly aggravated at the Khaleesi because she won't be naked anymore. Oh, like real life, the actress? Yeah, like she signed up for a role that clearly would involve a lot of nudity. Then the show got popular and she got popular and she then said she won't get naked anymore. <laughs> so Howard Stern's mad. That yeah. sounds about right. So And they did a great prank call where they used Howard complaining about it as like clips on a soundboard and he called into an internet radio show and was bitching about it. It was, it was great. But I don't know what the fuck's going on with Game of Thrones and I'm never going to. Mm-hmm.